get fired up. Oh yeah! Performance, Performance enhancing, enhancing audio. audio. This is the State of Combat Podcast with Brian Campbell. the combat podcast coming at you bonus edition this week bc your boy the brian campbell in your ear hole i look you know i'm a company man but even if i wasn't i am a longtime fan of all things cbs staple for the past 20 years survivor uh really the greatest game show reality show competition show quasi sport that keeps us coming back season after season and i got one heck of a bonus podcast for you today looking at the show's history uh treating this show rightfully as a sport as a competition who's best who's better who's who's everything and you know some interviews too with some names you will know all too well today uh it's going to be a long one but it's going to be a great one if you're a survivor fan even even on the casual level you're going to enjoy the insight a little look at what it's really like to be on the island uh, uh you know straight up how bad do they smell where do they where do they drop a deuce there's a lot of questions we've always had and also looking at the gameplay strategy how it's evolved over the years what is our lineup today? A trio of interviews, Bach to Bach to Bach. One of Survivor's most famous and popular players, all time up first, Ethan Zahn. You know him. He's a winner of Survivor Season 3, Australia. And he played two more times, setting the record for the largest gap from 2004 to 2020 when he came back for this year's season 40, the ultimate uh, all-star edition, if you will, almost the ultimate Super Bowl edition. We're going to hear from Ethan, two-time cancer survivor, talking about his history in the game, the celebrity he went through by winning season three back when, uh, you know, the viewership totals were just through the roof. Uh, Even talk that celebrity uh, relationship he had going for a short period with Jennifer Love Hewitt and more on that. And then we're going to throw it over to my CBS cohort, you know him as the host of the Nothing Personal podcast and digital video show on CBS Sports. It's David Sampson. You probably know him a little bit better as the former president of the Florida Miami Marlins, the Montreal Expos. He was also, if you forgot, on season of, uh, in 2014, Survivor Kagayan. Unfortunately, getting the boot when his tribe turned on him in the opening episode, we're going to talk about that, about what his experience was like, about, you know, how much that L still hurts and if Samson will ever come back and try again. And then I'm going to bring on a friend of the program that you know very well, Eric Raskin, boxing poker writer extraordinaire, also survivor expert and super fan. He's seen every single season. Him and I have been trading emails, DMs going back a, almost a decade on this show. Uh, he's going to come on and we are definitively going to count down 40 seasons and 20 years in uh, our rankings for the greatest players of all time. Favorite, most lovable players of all time, biggest villains, hottest chicks, on and on, best seasons, all of that, how the game has evolved, how the strategy has evolved, how the game might continue to evolve to keep it on top where it is today as a staple in the, uh, you know, reality TV competition game show, uh, setting there for CBS. Uh, excited about this, fired up to bring it to you. Know you're going to enjoy it. Please, uh, of course, continue to, uh, you know, 
Visit what we do on the SOC every week. We got you covered in boxing, MMA, Hall of UFC Hall of Famer, Rashad Evans, all that. Give us that five-star review on Apple Pods or wherever, you know, Google Pods, wherever you are listening to this today. Spread that love forward. We hope you enjoy it. But it's Ethan, Ethan Zahn, David Sampson, Eric Raskin coming your way after a quick pause for the cause. Get ready, all right? Put your buff on, okay? Your tribe has spoken. Let's do this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, you know I'm a survivor diehard, and I am fired up to finally get a a, a true survivor celebrity on this podcast. Uh, you know him as the winner of season three, Survivor Africa, a two-time cancer survivor. Former pro soccer player, motivational speaker, reality TV star. It's Ethan Zahn. Ethan, I'm fired up for this at this moment. I know you're somewhere off in the woods enjoying life. How's it going, man? Well, now I'm fired up because you're so fired up. And that was a spectacular introduction. So uh, thank you. And oh. it's great to be here chatting with you. All right. It only goes downhill from here. That's fantastic. Uh, look, <laughs> Here's why I got so excited about you joining the most recent season, a, a historic season, season 40 Survivor, Winners at War, uh, in a, a veritable all-star game. But really, I think the best one Survivor's ever put together in terms of getting the best of the best of the best. And that certainly includes you. But, you know, you were a record breaker. You hadn't been in the game for so <laughs> long. I mean, it was the record for the longest gap. We saw you in 2004, Survivor All-Stars. That was season eight, I believe. And now we see you again in 2020. Um, this is like comparing, you know, George Mikan against Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> in basketball terms, you know, how they match up. What was that like for you considering how vastly the, the game had changed? Oh man. Yeah. It was, uh, it was like, I was playing back in 2001. It was like, we were playing underwater, you know, it was like slow motion survivor. And then, you know, fast forward, like you said, many years, 16 years till I'm back on again. And it's like rocket fuel. This game is so fast paced. Information is passed so quickly. There's new clues and idols, ways to get back in the game. Currency it's just like a new experience altogether. It's like not better or worse. It's just different. And so, yeah, coming out of retirement after so long and getting myself back up to speed was a daunting task. Uh, look, so many families obviously can enjoy Survivor. I've got uh, twin sons. They're 12 years old, and, and they're finally into it and, and loving it. And what I always try to explain to them is – you see that guy on the screen, Ethan, back when he won it, if you got one <laughs> blindside a year, you'd be telling your friends about how awesome it was. Here, you're getting two to three blindsides an episode, it seems like. So it's certainly <laughs> Survivor on steroids. I know that you got voted out early. It was young against old in a lot of ways. But did you feel like you could hang in this new environment? Yeah, I, I think I could hang. I personally believe, you know, I'm going to be the guy saying, like, oh, back in the day, we used to walk to tribal council uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot. That's what it was like back in the day. You know? But, like, the game, you know, 
the whole aspect of the, like the survival aspect of the game really was a non-factor. So like some of the skills that I like thought were important to the game just were, were non were insignificant at this point, you know, like, you know, being the provider, you know, honor, integrity, you know, you know, providing for people, like just doing well in challenges. None of that matters anymore. It's like all about strategy and gameplay and just being uncomfortable for 39 days. And so getting out early was uh, uh, unfortunate because I had put in a lot of time, a lot of effort. I trained. I got myself ready mentally, physical, spiritually to go play this game. And then it just got cut short because of these slimy, little, impatient millennials. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> millennials always ruining everything. Uh, look, you, you played, obviously, yeah. a big part in Season 40 because of the the extra hook with the uh, Edge of Extinction, the Bare Bones Island, and uh, holy crap, Ethan, you, you went a long way. And um, just to kind of give us an understanding... When you compare yeah. what you normally have in tribe and you build up a shelter and you get food, uh, you know, rewards, you get a lot of different things over the course of a season. What's Edge of Extinction like compared to that on the on the day to day, the grind? The day to day, it is uh, it's the worst place on Earth. <laughs> it is purgatory. You are literally caught in between life and death in the game of Survivor. So for those who don't know what that is. When you're voted off Survivor in this current season, you don't go home. You go to this place called the Edge of Extinction. It's, you know, initials EOE, which I don't think many people know about. It actually stands for the end of Ethan is what that stands for, <laughs> because that place literally is crushed your spirit. Um, there's nothing happening. Maybe every few days you're getting a challenge. There's no food. There's no shelters. There's very limited ways to actually procure fish and food like that. So you're just sitting around starving to death wishing you were back in the game or home one of those two things so it's a mental torture and that's what they want like that's what probes wants like they want to send you there to have this transformational experience because the one thing that is incredibly difficult on the edge of extinction is there is a flagpole right in the middle of the island that you can see 24 hours a day and if you just raise that flag it's actually a sail if you just raise that sail you get to go home game over you're eating your Doritos, you're drinking your Coca-Cola on the couch watching TV. But you can also try to stay because you only have two more chances to get back in the game. So that daily torture of like debating whether you want to stay or go or play or not play is just maddening. That's got to be intense. So, uh, you know, we normally interview boxers, mixed martial arts, UFC champions, pro wrestlers on this show. <laughs> Maybe not so much in the pro wrestling, but a lot of times we talk about the mental side, the mental warfare of it. And, you know, the ex-champions will tell you it's all mental. And I, I very mm -hmm. so many times have said, like, you know, they're wired differently. The guys that can go in there and, and you know, we great UFC card this past weekend to see five rounds, 25 minutes of hellacious brawling. They're just wired differently. Well, Ethan, I say the same thing about you guys. And obviously your personal story adds into this where, you know, you didn't just endure an insane edge of extinction. You've endured two bouts with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma and, you know, had been, I'm reading, in isolation for 260 days. Um, I guess the, the basic way I can ask this is, is how are you wired for this? This, this element of, <laughs> of soul surviving where it's, it's all mental at the end of the day. Uh, what have you learned about how strong the human spirit can be in this process? 
That's exactly, you know, what I learned. The game of Survivor for me has always been a mental game. You know, physically, I feel I've been okay. You know, I can get through to this moment. I've been a former professional soccer player. I've trained at a high level. Like, I knew what it takes to get yourself in shape physically. But the mental side of this game is, for me, torture. Because part of it, you know, you're making friends with these people, and you're liking them, and you're enjoying their company, but then you got to vote them off. So that's one whole thing. The other whole thing is going into this game where, you know, the elements are a factor. It is a real uh, a real dilemma on a daily basis on how you're going to get through that day. So you're, the mental side of the game is, is really huge. And for me, having been through a health challenge like cancer twice and being in isolation doing 60 days, I learned a couple of things about myself is how far you can push the body. I actually feel I learned this on the first season of Survivor, Survivor Africa, where the environment was just as horrible as the edge of extinction in terms of food, water, shelter, and we had the real threat to animals as well. So like, I learned that you can really push your body to the absolute limit, and then you can push it even more. So like when I got into that, uh, you know, my, my fight with cancer, I took the strategies that I learned kind of in Survivor and brought that to my fight against cancer. Obviously, I'm, one, I'm playing for a million bucks, the other one's I'm playing for my life. But that mentality where there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, it's not necessarily a sprint. This is like a marathon. And so like, yeah, I tapped into my innermost, you know, mental strength that I could possibly do um, to get through these moments. And there were some dark times there because, you know, going into the game with the, the I guess, the weight and baggage of having a health challenge like cancer kind of started to drive me mad because I got to a point where I was so depleted and you're skinny, you're tired, you have no energy, you have no food. It's, it's tough to get through a day. The last time I felt like that was when I was sick with cancer. Right. So like I instantly got shot back to this like PTSD moment. And I just started ruminating on these destructive thoughts where I'm like, I'm giving myself cancer again. What the frick is going on? Like I'm killing myself. I got to get out of here. So to battle through that was uh, torturous. And it's not like I can turn to someone and just say, Hey, Boston Rob, like I'm really <laughs> feeling down and lonely right now. Can you help cheer me up? <laughs> like, no, you can't do that in Survivor because they're going to weaponize that information and use it against you at a later date. So you're just stuck in your own self. So if you don't know yourself and you're not good at, at being alone by yourself, like Survivor's not necessarily the game for you. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's interesting about this whole crazy quarantine time is that in in some ways, right? A lot of us are going through such an unprecedented feeling. I talk a lot on the show that like my job security is great. My family's great. I got a fenced in backyard with dogs. I can walk to hiking trails. Thank God, uh, you know, no one in my family's, uh, you know, uh, had the COVID. I am not in a crazy apartment building where I can't get out because of the, the proximity of people. Yet with that said, it's a it's a daily mental health challenge in many ways yeah. to get through the crazy changes here. So if we're going to compare, uh, I mean, it's all isolation in the end when you when you break yeah. away from your normal life. Uh, could you give us any tips from your journey through life through Survivor that maybe can be applicable during this quarantine? Because I think a lot of us, whether we admit it or not, uh, this ain't easy right now. It's definitely not easy. And, um, you know, global pandemics change the world and we don't really know the extent to how this one is going to change ours right now. And so like all this uncertainty is just driving us mad and the uncertainty kind of makes creates anxiety. And something that I've learned through all my challenges is just something simple like acceptance. You know, the first step to controlling anything 
that's out of control is acceptance. And once you can accept that, then you can move on to the next phase, which is mapping out how you would like to live this next six, 12, 18 months of your life. Like I didn't want to accept that can't, there's this bug inside my body trying to kill me, but I had to. Right. And I had to, in order to be able to go on to like seriously plan how I want to live or survive these next part of my life. So my advice to the folks out there is like, once you can accept this, like I said, every challenge, every crisis has got a middle, a beginning, middle, and an end. And you just got to pace yourself because once you take, can take care of yourself and make sure yourself and your family are safe, you got your structures and your, your systems in place, then you can start focusing on, you know, other people focusing on your job, focusing on all that stuff. But the first step in all this is accepting what's going on in the world because living in denial isn't helping anyone. You know, you, you can't deny what's going on because that's just going to create destructive decisions and make you, you know, I always say like, you can't necessarily keep a beach ball submerged underwater for really that long. Over an extended period of time, it's going to pop up in really weird ways. And you're going to start doing things different, making, you know, stupid decisions. So you got to accept it. You got to acknowledge it, and then you're able to plan how you're going to live the next phase of your life. I like that. I like that. My early strategy of too much beer and watching every <laughs> every war movie ever made that didn't go well. Wife was not happy with the results of that one. Um, I smell a book coming here, Ethan Zahn. All right, I know, Ooh, I know you got the motivational. What, what's the title going to be? Speaking background. If I had to guess, I'm thinking like isolation survival guide. Am I? Cl- <laughs> I love it. All right. All right. All right. Is this the isolation the survival guy? Let's do it. All right. All right. I like that. I like that a lot. Oh, uh, great to hear <laughs> you've been cancer free since 2012. Um, it's such a incredible inspirational journey. Um, it's weird because then you're able to use that journey and the fuel from that to play this crazy third trip around for survivor. Did you ever believe at any point between 2004 and when you accepted this through all the changes that happened in your life from soccer to cancer, celebrity to regular life that you'd be back doing this thing again? No. Yes. And no, like, yes. In the sense that like, I knew at some point, you know, Jeff Probst and survivor crew, you know, they're going to be do something big. There's going to be an all winner something, the super bowl, the super bowl, it's got to happen. My issue was, like, I have so many health challenges. I didn't know if I'd ever be ready, you know, basically mentally and spiritually and physically to play this game. And I did get one call before to go back and play. And that was back in 2010. It was when they were doing heroes versus villains. But, of course, I was sick. So I was literally inside my hospital room getting a second stem cell transplant, watching my friends on Survivor play this game. And I'm like... Rick, if I get out of this thing alive, literally, I was that touch and go. If I get out of this alive, I'm going to get back. I'm going to play Survivor again. took me 10 years to get to a point where I could say yes. And uh, I did it. So for me, there's so many levels of, you know, uh, goal setting and achieving that to to get to this point. Just getting to the starting line (laughs) of Survivor for me was like a win. So for me, I kind of played the game in a a bunch of different ways. You know, obviously I want to win and do well, but I have some like life moments that I wanted to achieve as well for being out there. Yeah, I was going to ask that same question where you mentioned Edge of Extinction and probes sort of shaping that as really like an opportunity to share feel-good stories of growth, and it works. I mean, you watch that show, you're you're touched by everyone's individual journey. Um, 
did you did you get the competitor side of you coming out at any point? Because like you said, obviously, you want to win. It's a $2 million prize. Um, mm. Are you thinking at all about your Survivor legacy? Because this has become a, you know, 40 seasons in, this is like a pro sport. You know, we could, you know... We could, and many people do, podcasts where you're counting down the greatest players as if we're looking at, like, the NBA or something. So was there a moment where you got back into the into the mode where you're like, uh, I can win this thing. I want to win this thing. Boston Rob, you're going down, brother. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the first nine game, days of the game when you're in it, um, I was, you know, 100%, 120% the whole time, really feeling I did have a good shot at going far in the game. I, I thought I liked my plan. I liked my alliances. I like my strategy and it just backfired because, you know, someone made a silly move on the edge of the extinction. It's uh, when I first got there, I was ready. I was like, you know, high energy, ready to do this thing. But obviously as more and more people get to the edge of extinction and because I was there for the longest period of time, I'm the most depleted. It just became a little bit of a question because they, you have these giant challenge beasts come Boston, Rob, you got Tyson, you got Yule, you got Wendell, yes. you know, you got Natalie, these people who are just have played a lot more recently than I have. And they're young and fit. Well, maybe not Rob, but um, <laughs> so like you gotta, the, yes, yes. And no, like the, I was, I was um, uh, understood my potential. However, I'm not the type of guy who's going to give up. And so for me, I just had to make a, a secondary plan of trying to go as hard as I could and just, like I said, achieve some goals for myself that were kind of like a subset of goals amongst the whole overarching let's win this freaking thing. Because on the edge of extinction, there's 11 to 16 people competing for one spot to get back in the game. So, you know, statistics, you know, from sports, you know, not good shot for me, but at least I was there. I didn't give up. I stayed the whole time and uh you know i don't know i didn't die that was a good thing i didn't die and i think that i think the production was worried about me at the time that wow. i wasn't really gonna die well you've, you've always been one of the more beloved players so people are excited for you to come back um i have so many layman survivor questions i'm sure so many people yeah. stop you with every day but they always are showing obviously because they're editing down to an episode strategy talk what's the like day-to-day talk minute to minute like i mean are you guys are just pouring through and investing in each other's lives and talking about your favorite gas station food and i mean like we never hear any of that i know i there's so many things happening in the game these days that there's no time for like character development and just kind of learning a little bit more about who we are how we interact with each other at its core, like once you take away food, you take away water, you're tired, you're hungry, you're thirsty, Survivor's just a game of relationships. It's a bunch of people stuck in a horrible place, like connecting with each other in, in a very, a lot of different ways. So on the edge of extinction, yeah, you're just literally, you're, you're, cause there isn't much going on. You're learning about people, like what they're doing, what their jobs are, coming up with cockamamie inventions, you know. <laughs> Obviously, you know, body fluid jokes everywhere. And like, you know, you're talking about food all the time, but it's boring. It is, you know, we say the days are long and the nights are longer. It gets dark at, you know, 5 p.m. and it doesn't get light until 6 a.m. And you're starving and you're just sitting around a fire doing nothing, trying to sleep, but you can't sleep. So boredom is a huge part of it. So like it really isn't that much exciting stuff to like focus on. However, I do feel they could have made easily a half hour show from the edge of extinction there was enough action and enough good conversation and humorous moments 
catching fish, you know, falling down on the rocks, finding coconuts. Like there was enough <laughs> information there where you where you could have, you know, made a decent but out of it. Uh, it was just a, an editing choice. Uh, but yeah, you know, we are people at its core, and uh, the Edge of Extinction gave us a little bit more time to like converse on a human level than the real game yeah, did. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like today's players, and maybe this is part of fueling the longevity of this show, uh, have it so much better than you as one of the original <laughs> three-season pioneers where I feel like there's more food challenges, you know, uh, per episode than I've ever seen. Uh, is that necessary to keep the show going? I don't know. I mean, you know, for me, like, I try, like, I honestly feel I can outstarve anyone on the planet. Like, that's a skill set for me. Like, my whole strategy was, like, let's eat as much food as possible early on because I'm so much better at starving than everyone else that when we have no food, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, rise to the top. That was a strategy of mine. So, when other people want to ration the food over an extended period of time. So, there is a lot more food opportunities. There's a lot more, I guess, chance opportunities in the sense where, you know, there's a hidden idol or there's an advantage or there's fire tokens. Like there are a lot more opportunities to get yourself ahead in the game that weren't around back then. So like you really needed to rely on your own personality traits, your own manipulation, whatever you want to call it, winning challenges and surviving off the land. That's what it was back in the day in the core. And now there's just so many different options. It's just like it's it's tough to even strategize for the long term. <laughs> That's why things are like it's tribal to tribal. Like the game is just a game between tribals is really what it is. And, uh, you know, so I do think they have an easier like the survival side of it is a lot easier. Like it was a lot easier. But the mental and strategic side of it is a lot more difficult. Yeah, that's a good way to sum it from up. My, from my experience. Yeah, my experience. absolutely. Uh, do you have, uh, I mean, I could ask you how bad your, your co, your co-contestants smell, but I'm sure it's awful. But <laughs> do you have mirrors or razors? I mean, is there any basic, you know, hygiene, outhouse, anything? Nothing. We oh. get, uh, not like no toothbrush, no deodorant, no razors. Uh, you know, the only thing you can bring is if you're on, you know, prescription medicine. Um, and if you're wondering, I did ask if I could bring cannabis because I, if they said no, (laughs) (laughs) um, my CBD and cannabis, right. You know, I got to get that in there, but now the doctor said to it out, it's illegal and huge, unfortunately. But, um, but yeah, there's a medical box. So they give you sunscreen, they give you bug spray and then all your prescription meds and that's it. The rest you're on your own. You don't get anything. And water. They have a well now that's got water in it. All right. Most often asked question by members of my family. Won't they know you're searching for an idol if there's a camera crew following you? Yes, they will. They will. (laughs) Um, But there are a lot of camera crews. And um, there are at least three camera crews per tribe all day. So if one or two people are looking for, you know, an idol, they're following you. They're keeping one camera back at camp. So if two people go off, they're following you. But that was a major dilemma because, yes, it it comes to it gets to a point where, like, if one person starts looking, like everyone goes and looks. And also it's also, uh, you know, that you can't just go off on your own anymore. Like in Survivor Africa and all stars, like I can go take a walk down the beach or hang out with a buddy, you know, to, to shoot the shit. 
But now you can't because if you walk off with anyone, oh, they're looking for an idol or they're an alliance or they're doing X, Y, and Z. So it's almost like it was we were paralyzed by the opportunity to go look for an idol. And it just it became another part of the strategy. Like how and when can you sneak away to look for an idol? Like you're waking up at 4 a.m. when the sun's coming up to go look for an idol. You know, think, oh, I got to go get water and you're sneaking off looking for an idol here and there. So it's all in the run of show or you agree as a group that we're all going to go look for an idol right now. Right, right. But yeah, it's a factor. Uh, what do you, uh, you know, let's give probes and companies some credit here. How the hell is this show not only still going, <laughs> but, you know, still innovating, but still drawing ratings. Uh, just to, to update you on my fandom, I watched episodes, uh, seasons one through three as hardcore as anybody else. Stop watching. Found out 10 years later, my parents were still watching and taping every episode of every season. I'm like, this show's still on? What? I got back in around season 16 and have been absolutely, or maybe it was 18, whatever. It was absolutely hardcore since then. Um, what's the secret sauce here? Why does this thing still work? I believe, one, it's a family show. People, you know, you, it's, it's fun for the whole family to watch. And they do such a good job casting people from all walks of life that I think anyone watching the show can almost insert themselves into it and just kind of like pretend this is what I would have done or I would have never done that or I would align with this dude. or So it's almost like, uh, you know, voyeuristic experience because in the end, we're all just like we're just normal people that got cast and got lucky to be on this show. So it's not like we've trained our whole life to be an actor or an actress or a high performing athlete. And it's it's fun to watch as a viewer, but you can't imagine yourself in that experience. I think Survivor, you can absolutely, anyone on the planet can imagine what they would do if they were out there on the show and how they would relate to everyone. And I think that's the draw. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Jeff Probst, they do an incredible job of innovating the show. I really think it's the cross section of it's a, it's a little snapshot of what's going on in the world. You know, they bring up sensitive issues. They talk about stuff other shows don't want to talk about. They do charity stuff. They go into the villages. It's geographically exciting. It's visually beautiful. Editing is awesome. Characters are fun. It's just a real, you know, nice family-friendly show. Uh, tell me about this. When you won in 2001, and, I mean, look, this show has been popular throughout, but I don't think people, if they didn't watch those first couple seasons, realize how ridiculously popular this this show you know was i mean you were when you win in 2001 survivor africa and you know you're a young good-looking guy you got the soccer thing going on the side you end up doing tv work what was it like to go from regular guy to essentially a a celebrity like overnight uh it was awesome <laughs> you know people are like i'm not gonna lie it was a really fun time of my life like you said i was coming off a playing career in the minor league levels in Africa. I was playing in the Zimbabwe Premier League. They've been in New York City coaching in, at D1, Fairleigh Dickinson University. And then I won. And, like, your life is just blown apart at the seams in a good way. And people start recognizing you, a lot of opportunity. You know, I was single in 27. There was a lot of, you know, women throwing themselves all around. You get into clubs and parties. It's just, like, it was insane. And I don't think people realize there was no other reality shows on the air. So it's not like I'm thinking that I'm this big thing. It's just there's no other options for people to watch. So I was right place, right time. I think my finale was 27 million people wow. watched the Survivor Africa finale. Like the premiere of Survivor All-Stars was after the Super Bowl on CBS. The Patriots won. I think it was like 32, 33 million people watching Survivor. Now they're getting like, you know, seven to nine million viewers a week versus 
27 to 30 million viewers a week. Yeah. So just put that into perspective in the grand scheme of what TV was like back then. So that's why it was just so exciting. I mean, you were all, you know, you were in a spot where you're all over the magazines. You do the Howard Stern show. And I, I would be remiss oh, I, if I didn't mention yeah. this because of me growing up in the 90s. Did you really date Jennifer Love Hewitt? Did this really happen, <laughs> Ethan Zahn? Because you could just walk off and retire right now if this is true. <laughs> Uh, it really did happen. It really did happen. However, uh, it, uh, it ended quickly because of my experience on Howard Stern, unfortunately, because uh, I, I wasn't, you know, he's a really good at what he does and I was unprepared and, you know, we weren't necessarily uh, too public about our dating experience and he found out and just were, were ripping me apart. And then uh, I had a long talk with uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt after and it, it didn't go much further than oh, that. Oh, <laughs> come on. Oh, that is, I didn't expect no, this. No, I don't think that was a reason. She's an incredible woman. She's really nice to, to, to meet and hang out with. But we're both young. I mean, I was 27 years old. You know, so yeah, um, that, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, look, to close here, you, uh, it wasn't just Survivor. We know you from that. We saw you on season 19 of Amazing Race. If Wikipedia is right, I've also seen you on Fear Factor. I remember that in 05. You did Kill Reality. I don't remember that. Celebrity Paranormal Project. There was Pitchmen on the Discovery Channel. I remember that time Richard Hatch was on uh, The Apprentice and you were on there. Is there any trip down the reality road that you want to take back? Oh, uh, no. I, that's, that was what was so awesome because, like, there was, that, there was the opportunity. And I was the type of person who just I, – I realized that – I was in a really lucky position and uh, the world was coming at me. And so I literally just said yes to everything. I didn't care because I knew it was going to end. And when it was ending, I'd be fine with that. You get in, you have fun, you maximize it. You use the platform for good if you can. And then when it's over, it's over. And so, yeah, I said yes to all those things. You missed eco challenge, which is, <laughs> you know, makes survivor an amazing race look like uh, you know, a day at the, you know, at the, Disney World, you know, yeah. um, and that's coming back on the air as well this this fall as well. I'm really excited to see Eco Challenge, but yeah, it was uh, I got really lucky to be able to do all that stuff. You can almost go full time. We've seen people on like the MTV Challenge circuit do this, where like that's your full time job, reality star. Did that ever <laughs> that ever crossed the mind for you at all? No, it, it really didn't. You know, I I I was open to all of it. I got into hosting, which is something I never thought I'd do. I started broadcasting for soccer and being the sideline reporters and calling games as an analyst. So that was really fun and it opened doors in the soccer world. So, you know, for me going on survivor was always about the, the game is about winning. It was about getting the title, you know, like I'm sure some of your MMA guys are talking about it. I just wanted to win the title that will never go away. The money's going to go. And so that was hugely important for me is just as a competitor and as an athlete, it's just to win. So I didn't really want to be a reality star. And, you know, I had, you know, I used the money that I won from survivor Africa. I donated it to start a charity called grassroots soccer. And so now we're currently in 60 countries. Wow. We graduated 2.9 million kids from the program. So for me, that's what survivor did for me. It enabled me to start this charity and kind of really, save a lot of lives in this world and so i always had that as my real passion and survivor and the platform it gave me was just a really great uh vehicle to amplify what we're doing at grassroots soccer great stuff and i've you know you, you were the national ambassador for stand up to cancer you've uh inspired a lot of people so how about you inspire somebody in the cbs family we know him we love him it's david sampson from the nothing personal podcast he's of course the former president of the miami marlins montreal expos you remember 
our good friend Samson, 2014 Survivor Kagayan season 28, showed up in a suit, but they voted him out in like the first five minutes. It seemed like, um, is that the what hardest? Were they thinking? Is that the hardest fall we've ever seen? Can can you get in Prope's ear and get this guy back on the show here? You got any advice for Samson here? <laughs> I think he has got advice for me, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunate early exit for anyone, but uh, the game is, you, you know, the game is so much up to chance that uh, getting voted out first is is a real chance for everyone that goes out there. Oh, he could have won that. He could have, if only they gave him he a could've. shot there. Oh my gosh! Wow, Ethan's on. It's been fantastic talking to you. Um, I'm going to hit you with the hardest question of the show to close, and this is really it. It goes like this: Yes, my hair is real. Oh yeah, well I I would guess no. No, just kidding. No, it looks looks real, looks great. Um the greatest survivor player of all time. Uh in my household we're split between Boston Rob and Tony. Tony V, two time winner. Um you've always been on these lists of the most beloved, the most influential players. Who's the greatest player of all time? You know, I I'm split I'm split with the same as you. I'd like to throw poverty into the mix as well. Um, as a female, you know, winner, uh, I'm, I, of all those people, I'd probably have to go with Rob, Boston Rob, just because, you know, he's evolved his game. He's played a lot of different ways. Um, he's won, he's lost. So I think he's got the most experience and he's probably one of the best players ever. Uh, but Tony, look at what he did this season. This was a season of all winners. So if you can beat all winners at the game of survivor, you are worthy of the title. And, uh, so I'm complete, I'm split down the line. I'm split down. Although it did take Boston Rob more times to win it only took me once to win right i mean i'm That's just saying true. like as the original winner from boston you know uh, i'd like to say i paved the way for boston rob to uh you know <laughs> achieve his uh celebrity status in the survivor world well said sir uh great chatting with you uh, can i where can we find you on social media get what i mean are we going to see this book in print what's going on here I don't know, man. Uh, I hope so. Now, now you sparked my interest. Maybe I'll uh, get something going. But you can find me on Instagram at Ethan Zahn. I got a website, EthanZahn.com. Um, yeah, and I'll be I'll be on another reality show this fall Ooh. called The Kings of Kush. It's about a 160 acre hemp farm in Plainfield, Vermont. Whoa. So everyone can keep tuning in. It should be pretty spectacular. Fantastic on that. And uh, is the Survivor career over? Or is it never over? The it's, survivor. Yeah, I told probes to lose my freaking number. So, well, uh, I think you're yeah, like a lot of the boxers and, you know, MMA guys I talk. There's always one more fight left. There's always one more payday <laughs> left, right? I don't know. Maybe if they build a, you know, a 50-foot statue of me, I'll go back out there again. Like <laughs> Shout out to Rob and Sandra <laughs> on that. Ethan Zod, it's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Keep inspiring the people. We're going to get through this quarantine. We're going to get through everything, all right? We are. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Take care. All right. I couldn't have a Survivor Super Show without bringing on one of my favorite, uh, let's just say, rising voices and talents in the sports broadcasting game, my colleague at CBS Sports. You know him from his days atop the game in Major League Baseball as the Florida slash Miami Marlins president. But he's David Sampson, host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson, a, a fantastic podcast and digital show at CBS Sports. David, I'm fired up to talk to you on so many levels, okay? Love being on your show uh, and doing things with you on CBS Sports HQ. Now you're on mine. You, of course, are a Survivor veteran. 
uh, you got a little bit of a survivor beard going on right now. Tell the people if they haven't seen you on camera lately, what the heck's happening here? So first of all, love being on your show. You are amazingly talented. I love working with you as well. It's always fun. So when you asked me to be on, I was super excited. I can tell you that I've been growing this beard for about 122 days because when baseball shut down back in March, I said, all right, as part of nothing personal, I'm going to start the ML beard challenge. I'm not going to shave until there's opening day in baseball, whenever that is. And in the meantime, for the first 100 days, and I knew it would be longer than 100 days, for the first 100 days, I'm going to give away $1,000 to a different charity every single day yes. to help people who've been negatively impacted by COVID. So for 77 days, I gave to all the team foundations in baseball and basketball. I gave to uh, each day a different worthy organization to help. So many people are, are impacted by COVID, not just the athletes. It takes so much to put on a sporting event. So many ancillary people involved who just get impacted negatively. But then on day 77, I think that's around when George Floyd got murdered. And so I switched, I made an adjustment. And for the last 23 days of the 100 days of giving away money to charity, I chose organizations who are focused on education and, and solving the social unrest and social that's injustice awesome. and systemic racism issues. So 100 days passed. And then it kept the beer challenge continued the charity part has ended, uh, so I the 100 organizations were posted, and that's that, and given to. But now the beard, and the thing is, I, I committed not to trim it either. So you have a beard, and you look really good. You look like you can eat. So I've lost about 13 pounds in quarantine. I need to use a straw because anytime I do anything, there's hair in my fa in my mouth. Yes. It is brutal. I, I can't was going to ask of the uh... – the job hazards, the life hazards that come because uh, people can only hear you right now and not see you, but it's, it's like Santa Claus level. You're getting a full beard going here, and I certainly respect the, the, the methods and the means while you're doing this. Uh, are you at the point now where you, you can't wait? You can't wait to get this thing off? Are we counting down the days? So let's be clear. I said that I would shave after first pitch opening day. So here's how it works. On July 23rd, I don't know what day you're releasing this, but on July 23rd, at 7.08 p.m. Eastern, the first pitch of the MLB season will happen when the Yankees are in Washington to play the Nationals. I will be with Hugo of Heads Up Barbershop, who is the official barber of the Marlins, the best barber in the country for me. He's cut my hair since 2002 when I joined the Marlins. He's opening his shop, and I will be there because at 7.09 p.m., the process starts of getting this beard off. Now, there better not be rain. They don't have a roof in Washington. So if that game gets rained out, I'll have to sit there until 10.08 p.m. when the Giants play the Dodgers. I assume it's not going to rain in L.A. And if they cancel the MLB season, Brian, all I can say is do not cancel it until after one pitch Please. of one game. After yeah, that, let the chips fall where they may. All right. Well, before we get into Survivor here real quick, I know you're a busy man. Uh, I love your transition you've made because we knew you as, as baseball executive, and I mentioned uh, – the survivor appearance, but your transition to the, you know, broadcasting hot take game has been fun to watch because I know you may actually have FU money, but I feel like even if you didn't, you'd come from a standpoint where you're just not afraid to say what needs to be said. How has this adjustment been to you and really kind of carving out your voice in this space? So the answer is I was the president of the Marlins, not the owner. So I definitely need to and want to work. I'm not the guy who will ever retire. I knew that I wouldn't because I love working. And I was the type of president uh, throughout 
my 18 years in baseball where people noticed that I had a tendency to say things that really weren't very presidential or to be honest and straightforward. And some people were offended by that and bothered by that because they feel there's a certain way that you have to act when you are the president of a major sports team. And I remember thinking to myself that I don't want to go down the path that everyone goes down where they're boring, where they give BS answers to everything, where they're lying all the time. I have the opportunity, once I'm unshackled, which is how I really felt getting out of baseball, I now have the opportunity to tell people really what goes on. Because one of the unique things I noticed is right after Jeter fired me back in October of 17, and I noticed that in the landscape that I had lived with in 18 years, dealing with the media is a big part of your job when you're the president of a team, Most of the people talking don't know what they're talking about. They actually have never run a team. They've actually not dealt with the issues that are real. They don't know the truth. They just have these takes that are fun. They're hot. They're interesting. They get a lot of attention, but they're based on principles that are just not right. So I felt that I couldn't really correct it as much as I wanted to when I was the president of a team. But once I was done, I said, what can I do? Is there a way for me to use my love of media, my love of talking? Can I make money doing this and educate and inform people? And I found a niche and nothing personal has become this niche filler because we're a very honest show. It's 45 minutes, just me every single day. And I sort of explain to people what the hell's really happening. And often people get it wrong. They don't realize that when presidents or players or owners or commissioners or people are saying something, that's not what they mean at all. So I've really enjoyed the transformation. I love working with people like you and all the people at CBS. It's been great. Everyone's interesting to me. Everyone's got a story to tell. And I got news for you. I didn't realize how hard your job is until I started doing it. It's hard. I'm sure your job uh, running the Marlins was hard as well day to day, but uh, I appreciate that. And you're doing a great job. And uh, I remember for the great thing about the show survivor, right? We all, uh, I, I've been a diehard. I did have gaps as in my fandom, but uh, I am a, you know, season one, day one guy. And uh, I always feel like the opening episode, you get that snapshot of somebody, they come on the screen and you get to right away kind of claim who you think they are, right? Oh, that's the dumb hot chick. That's the, that guy's going to be the villain. That guy's going to be this, that guy's going to be whatever. And we go back to 2014 when your season was filmed, Survivor Cagayan, season 28 in the Philippines. It's brains, brawn, and beauty, three tribes. And day one, you show up wearing the suit coat and I go, the new villain is in town, the new boss the guy with the business background, cutthroat, this is going to be my guy. And of course we know what happened. One episode later, your tribe turned on you and all of that. But uh, I mean, kind of take me back to the beginning. How much of a dream was it for you to get there? And how long had you applied to get to this point? So the story is back in 2000, Survivor started. It was a mid-season replacement on CBS and I was working for the Expos. And I watched the first ever episode of season one in Olympic Stadium in the owner's suite after a home game. And uh, we stayed and watched the episode. And I knew from that minute I wanted to be on Survivor. I said, how cool would this be? It's the exact antithesis of who I am. I'm a city boy. I can't make fire. I don't like scrounging for food. I like eating when I'm hungry. I can't deal with people who I don't want to deal with. This is perfect for me. And so I watched Survivor year after year, and it was never the right time because we were 
getting out of Montreal, getting into Florida, then trying to build a ballpark. There just never seemed to be a good time. And I always said I need to be on the show, but I never applied. So in 2000 and maybe 10, I had a conversation with casting because I put a video in and they called and I had a little flirtation with them. And they said, you're building a stadium. Like, you, there's no way you can disappear right. for 45 days. It's just not going to happen. I said, I know, but I really want to be on the show. They said, get back to us when you're really ready. So in 2012, after, during the, the ballpark was open, Marlins Park, we were having a disastrous season. It was a nightmare with Ozzie Guillen. We couldn't win a game. We had to trade all these players at the end of the season, the famous Toronto Blue Jays trade. It was just horrific. So I said, isn't this a good time to maybe get to an island and stay for six or eight months? It seems possible. So in late 2012, early 2013, I sent a new video into Survivor and I got a call the next day and it was the casting guy saying, is it time? Are you ready? I said, I'm ready. Let's go. He said, well, we're going to need a note from your owner that you can disappear. I said, I didn't even tell him I applied. He said, you cannot be on Survivor unless you get a note. I had to go to Jeffrey Loria in the middle of all of the stuff going on with our team. It was a disaster. We we're losing money. We had done a fire sale. It was bad. I said, hey, Jeffrey, you've ever heard of the show Survivor? He's like, no. I said, well, it's a reality game show, and I want to be on it. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, listen, I'll forego my salary. I'm going to be gone for about 45 days, but I need you to send a letter to Burnett and Probst the producer and, you know, the host of the show that I can do this. He was pissed and he finally agreed to do it. I called up the casting guy, said I got a letter. They immediately had me out to LA for finals casting where I met Probst, met Burnett. And that was December of uh, 12. And then it filmed in July of 13 okay. and debuted on my birthday, February 26th of 14. And I got voted out first. And I still think about it. I'm telling you right now. This is no BS. I think about it every day. I would, I would, I was going to ask that question, and I'd have to assume, given your competitiveness, your ability to succeed in various, you know, lanes, business-wise, and all that, that look, nobody wants to be the first in anything negative. And I remember specifically episode one, season one of Survivor, the first lady who I don't even remember her name, but being like, oh man, she, you know, the popularity of the show, of course, at that point was through the roof. She's going to live with that forever. So. I certainly want to get into that in terms of bottling that L that you can really do nothing to fix. But strategy-wise, you had an uphill battle in theory, in my mind, because one, you're a celebrity coming in, so to speak. Two, there's the illusion that because of your celebrity job title that you don't need the money. So in theory, these people would have no intention of helping you get there. And I think in three, you, you not only have a savviness that comes across in a leadership but you come on wearing the suit coat, you know, you're out of central casting as that guy, right? The, the HR boss or the evil owner or however you want to frame it. Uh, did you have any intentions of, I guess, dumbing down? Because we've discovered over the years that you can't be all alpha and win. You can't be, you have to almost figure out how to be non-threatening and mediocre to survive and wiggle your way through. It's a great question. So let me start with a few things that will blow your mind. Number one, I had to tell people in my tribe that I was in marketing for the Miami Marlins. Hey. Not that I was the president, 
but I am 99.99999% sure that all of them knew that I was the president of the team. Cliff Robinson was on our season. Yes. So I thought he was, quote unquote, the celebrity, quote unquote, for that season. So I thought my story was going to fly. I found out later that it was very clear to everyone. Uh, two people on the tribe of six knew immediately, and the other three were then told immediately. So I didn't get away with that lie. And I didn't know that it was brains versus bronze versus beauty until filming started. They don't tell you what the theme of the show is. What they do tell you is what you're wearing. So oh, they do. Okay. Oh, so I was given, you know, the Thurston Howell costume. And for those of you who are too old, too young to know, that's from Gilligan's Island. And uh, Google it for Christ's sake, if you still don't know. And um, I thought that it would be to my advantage to have a blazer because I could use it to comfort women when they were cold if it rained. I could use it as a pillow. I wanted to have pants that I could eventually cut to have short, cut to be shorts if I needed. I liked the idea of a long sleeve button down shirt because I again could cut the sleeves off or I could have it depending on the weather because there was no way to know how much rain there'd be because back then you didn't know that you were filming in the Philippines. Survivor used to change locations all the time. Now it's always in Fiji and you know when you're going on Survivor, it's going to be in Fiji. Back then it would switch. So we get to the Philippines, and we only know we're going to the Philippines when we go as a group to Los Angeles International Airport, and you go to the check-in, and it's Air Philippines, and you're like, oh, we're going to Manila. Little wow. did we know that we landed in Manila, took another two-hour plane ride to Luzon, then took another two-hour bus ride to get to the tip-top northern part of, of the Philippines. In silence, by the way, there's no talking to your other castmates until the cameras roll. Not a word. Okay, you're you're showing how the sausage is made by our great uh, company, Viacom CBS here, and I like it. I like that they are doing everything to to you know instill the element of of, of surprise and of, of like we don't really know where this is going. It's great because as a player, you're trying to size people up and you're doing it in silence. You're trying to figure out who's who. And then all of a sudden you get to the start of filming. You see that there's three tribes and you still don't know that it's brains, brawn, beauty. And then Jeff Probst starts talking. And then he says, welcome to Survivor Cagayan. And then he says, what, are, what is it that it takes to win? Let's find out. Brains, brawn, beauty. And I'm looking around and I see Cliff Robinson and I say, all right. I'm definitely not the brawn. Then I look around and I see what had to have been a beauty queen. And it turns out I was right. Her name was Jeffra. Yeah. And what uh, another woman named Morgan, just two beautiful women. And I'm all right. Mor I know we're not allowed to say this, but Morgan might be the most beautiful I've ever seen on Survivor. So shout out to her. Um, shout out to her. She's awesome, by the way. Ironically, they're all amazing people. You hate them during the course of filming and then you love them. And we're, many of us are still in touch, many of us. So then I look and I see Jeffra and Morgan. I say, oh God. And I look at Jatia, who I didn't know her name, but she had a nerd shirt on. And I said, oh my God, we're the, this is all going on in my head as filming is starting. I said, oh my God, we're the brains. This is not good. This is not good. Look at how I'm dressed. All of this is going on. And then Jeff Probe says, and now you each have to choose a leader. And that's it. First rule of survivor, don't be a leader early. Yes. And they elected me leader. And I tried to get anyone to be leader. And it, and it screwed me. And then I chose Garrett to vote him off the tribe, who, which turned out to be a mistake. Basically, I had an entire plan going on the show. And I screwed up every part of it. There wasn't one thing 
that I had planned on doing that I was able to do once the cameras rolled. Well, look, the, people have to understand, like, when you cared about this this much to be on this show, you performing up to the level you think you could and, and having a chance to win is everything to you. So this the, the L's going to bleed whether you think it's your fault or it's circumstance. The only equivalent I could say is my entire youth, I was one of those sports um, – statistics, you know, statistics, historical fact nerds. I could outstump anybody. I wanted to be on a game show to test myself against the very best more than anything in my entire life. I'd come off to school, you know, study encyclopedias, study all that stuff, every sport across the board. When I was 22, I get on ESPN's two minute drill. I, I, I make the cut. I pass the test. I win them over personality wise. I get on the show. There's season two tournament, 32 people. I'm there for my first episode. I know I can beat this guy. I spent six hours in the green room with him and I, I lost and I took a hard L. I froze in front of the cameras, got some easy ones wrong. They screwed me in a key moment where Gary Barnett, former coach of Colorado uh, football, asked the question the wrong way. It confused me. They gave it to me a wrong answer when I really got it right. But just to tell that story, I was crying in the green room afterwards because this was still real to me. This was all I ever wanted to do in life was compete at something that I cared about at the super elite level. I couldn't even watch the show. It just killed me. Do you feel in hindsight that it was your fault or that you got caught up in circumstance time? Because look, when probes put you on the spot, it is what it is. You gotta, you know, you gotta think right off the top of your head. Do, 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 does it still irk at you that, that, that it should have gone differently and that it might be your fault? How do you feel about that? So I feel about it sort of like the lyrics to the song uh, by Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville, where he starts that song at the end of one refrain that it's somebody else's fault. And then the second is it could be my fault. And then the third one is, yeah, it's my fault. Right. So that's sort of the process I went through where immediately after I got voted out, I was in disbelief. I was like, these guys are bastards. They set me up. They wanted me out here to use me for my position and they're going to market it. And then I'm gone after a day. This is ridiculous. I wouldn't acknowledge any of the mistakes I made. And then time passed. And I said, you know what? It's definitely a combination. They totally screwed me, but I could have done better. I knew they were screwing me. I should have picked up on that. And now my position is, it's 100% my fault. They put me in a position where I had to fight my way out. And if I were as good as I thought I was, I would have fought my way out and I would have made better decisions. So I don't blame them at all. I blame myself. But what you said about remembering it, I, I've accomplished a lot in my life and I'm proud. I'm, I'm 52 years old and I've done athletic achievements and you know marathons and Ironman and raised money for charity and won a World Series. And I've done a lot of cool things and I have three kids who were healthy. I mean, just, you know, whatever. Like, I've made plenty of mistakes. I think about Survivor every day. It's insane. Oh, my I God. I, I, I hear I you. Isn't it weird that it's, it could be a breakup? It could be I lost in the semifinals in high school basketball and I, in, the, in a rec league, not even high school ball, in a freaking rec league, and I still can get mad thinking about it today. It's crazy in life how we hold on to these things that shouldn't matter, but they do but it's because it's still real to us. It's because we have this passion. So you end up getting voted out three votes to do close vote. They blindside you. It probably came down to you having to say Garrett was the weakest player out loud. Cause he held that against you. Do you and Garrett end up having some uh, hot water after that? Well, Garrett wouldn't talk to me immediately after um, he got voted out second. 
So Garrett had changed his life for a year before going on Survivor. He told me that he was a um, uh, a personal trainer because he had this. He had an eight pack, and he was just. I didn't like Garrett from the minute I didn't meet him because you see the people in your cast. You're waiting for the plane. You're not talking. This guy's eating everything in sight. And then we get to the island and have pregame where you have to see the doctor and you do some media stuff. You get et cetera, and you prepare for the start of the show. And he, again, he spent all day eating and it made me crazy. And then I find that I'm on the tribe with him and I just didn't want to be around him. Then he says that he's a personal trainer. I said, how are you on the brains tribe if you're a personal trainer? right? Give me a break. But he said, that's what I am. And it didn't even occur to me that I was lying about what I did for a living. So I knew that he was lying, but it didn't occur to me what he did for a living. I didn't think about it. It turns out he's a, he's a professional poker player. So he spent a year preparing to be on Survivor, watched every season. He had a full strategy in place. And when he lost, he took it really hard. And he'll tell you today. So we didn't speak for a bit, but then I reached out and we spoke and we are friends to this day. Uh, We text back and forth. I speak to everyone on the Brains Tribe. We have a group text, the six of us together, uh, Spencer and Cass and Jatia and Tasha and uh, and Garrett and I. I speak to other people from that season, whether it's Alexis, um, Cliff, Uncle Cliffy. You know, you get a bond. When you are a part of this experience, one of the things that I've learned through baseball is a lot of people think they have shared the experience with you because they've watched it on TV. But the truth is, they haven't shared it at all. They have merely put themselves into the experience by watching it and thinking they know you and know the circumstance. But you end up really clinging to people who have gone through that experience with you, whether it's in a baseball clubhouse or in a survivor cast when you're on an island. Because you can't go home and tell your loved ones what it was like because they don't get it. And you go through this amazingly deep experience physically and emotionally, and you can only share with the people who are there. So that bond, it's forever. And uh, that's one of the cool things about the Survivor family. I love that. Uh, I also love how you dealt with the being voted out in the moment, right? We always wait to see the face. Will the person be mad? Will they say, you know, well played? You, when you had your sit down on the camera, said, quote, I have no regrets. I played the way I needed to play. The tribe just doesn't have it together. I consider myself the luckiest person in the world, end quote. Little, little Lou Gehrig there, by the way, okay? Thank which you. Which I did a little research. You did attend, tell me if I'm wrong, Horace Mann uh, High did. School, which was in the neighborhood that the great Lou Gehrig I lived did. during his time post-Yankees. I only know that because my best friend went to Manhattan College, so I've partied That's right there. down there. But uh, That's right in the Bronx, right at Van Cortland Park. I parked in front of Horace Mann many a time. How, I'm sure you're crazy angry in that moment, but you decided to take the high road there. Uh, you, you could have ripped everybody. I, I respect you for that. that Let me bring it back to how they actually film that because it's pretty interesting. So tribal council takes a long time. You know, it's not 10 minutes the way it is on the show. It takes a long time and it gets edited. And then you, when, when the minute I knew I was done is when the second vote came for me because it was supposed to be, five to one. That's what we had all agreed to that we were going against Shatia. And I know Shatia would vote for me and then five votes on Shatia. But the minute there's a second vote, I know that I have a problem and that I'm gone. So my, I, I'm in the moment. And the first thing I thought of, cameras are rolling. I mean, it's all happening. There's camera people, there's people everywhere. And it was raining and it was, I was hungry and I was miserable. 
Jeff hasn't read the final vote saying in the first person voted out yet. He's going into the jar and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm the first boot. I am the first boot of Survivor. I cannot believe this is happening. That is where my head was. He calls the name and I just, I'm sitting there. And then the torches, by the way, are really heavy. So I pick up the torch, I put it in the hole in the ground, which they had taught us how to do with whenever you're voted out. He snuffs it. I look at him and I was like, you mother. Like, I was so angry. You then walk 20 feet and there are people waiting for you and you go right to film your exit immediately because they want that rawness out of you. And I said, I know what they want from me and I'm not giving it to them. I am not going to take the low road because this will be part of my legacy as it is on the first boot. And it's a nightmare. I am not going to be one of those sour puss sallies. I am going to, is that even an expression? I am going to take the high road and I'm going to acknowledge that I got it wrong. Our tribe is an absolute mess, but at the end of the day, it was on me. But after all is said and done, Hey, David, I, I am a lucky guy. That's media savvy right there. That is years of being interviewed by the uh, baseball press and turning words against you and you you having a uh, a distinct advantage because you could have flipped off Garrett and been like, I'm coming for you in real life, by the way. Mother. You're exactly but, right. But you didn't do that. Uh, you said during your Ponderosa interview, quote, you can only control the things you control. Can't control. This was very Zen-like, but I want to I want to use that as a, as a transition to say, what did you end up learning about life? Because that's a big theme now in the last five, 10 seasons about, especially with the, uh, the extra Island that sometimes, uh, what do they call it nowadays? Edge uh, of extinction, edge Island of, extinction. of the idols. It seems to all be all about, okay, these people will probably won't win, but we're going to showcase their personal inter journey. What was your biggest inner journey? Take? I know you're only there three days more or less, but what did you take away personally from that experience? Well, I think that I'm asked a lot about Survivor, believe it or not. I'm recognized, believe it or not, as much for Survivor. Now it's more nothing personal and people who've listened and watched. But it's it's interesting. People do love that show. And for whatever reason, there's only 39 people in the world who can say they were the first boot of Survivor in the U.S., right? There's 39 of us. That's it. Francesca got it twice. So there's 39 of us. And... It's a, it's a special exclusive club and I've met a few people in the club and we have fun talking about it and it hurts. But what I learned is that I'm a, I'm a big time control freak and to be the president of a team, to have your own show, it's my name and I want to control everything about my show because it's a reflection of my work ethic and if I'm not prepared, then people will know that. And I always tell people about nothing personal. They don't realize how much preparation it takes to look unprepared. And that is what nothing personal is about because I don't use a script. I don't use a teleprompter. And what I learned in Survivor is that even when you are in total control in your own mind of all of your surroundings, there are still things that require adjustment in real time. And if you are not willing and able to do real-time adjustments, you're going to get left behind. And that was, you know, six years ago. And I, so I think about Survivor all the time still. And I think about the lesson I learned, which is control what you can completely and then recognize when it's time to adjust. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, be honest here. How often have you reached out since taking that L first episode of the season 
to get back on, to, to slay your personal survivor demons and get on one of these all-star casts or second chances or something. So if they would do a first boot season, you know, would I take the call? Of course I'd take the call and I would, and I would talk about it. I would think about it. I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult question because the thought of being first boot twice would enter my head, obviously. The thought of being away from CBS and nothing personal for that period of time would enter my head. But on the other hand, the chance to accomplish things on the show that I wanted to accomplish I didn't get to, that's pretty much a theme of mine. I want to win everything I do. I'm incredibly competitive, which is ironic for a five foot five, 130 pound guy. I'm incredibly competitive. I don't want to lose at anything. I was the father who would not let my kids win at any board game or card game. I just wouldn't do it. And I would get yelled at saying, it's okay to let her win. She's four. I said, no, I won. If she wants to beat me, tell her to get better at the game. And so that level of competitiveness has always been inside me. And it's not going away anytime soon. And so I want to win. I want to win. So if I'm asked to play again, it's going to be hard to say no. I love that. I love that. All right, quick lightning round to close here. I could go hours with you. Always entertaining. Uh, you were on the season with Tony Vlachos, who not only won your season, he just wins uh, season 40, which, you know, in a lot of ways was the Super Bowl of Super Bowl seasons, bringing back former champions. Uh, big theme on this podcast, talking to Ethan Zahn, talking to my great friend and survivor historian Eric Raskin, was who's the greatest player of all time? If for my money, it's Tony or it's maybe Boston Rob for David Sampson's money. And I, and I know you have watched every season, if that's correct, or if that's correct, correct me. Who is the greatest player of all time and why? He who has made the most money is the greatest player. Tony's won $3 million. He is the greatest player. He's tied with Sandra. They've each won it twice. But Tony, you know, he won my season. He won season 40. I love being in touch with him. He's a great guy, a great, great guy. Nothing like he is on the show. He is a, a family guy who, you know, is a, a humble, you know, policeman in, in Jersey. And uh, to me, he is the greatest survivor player because he advances the story better than any other player. He plays the game better than any other player in a way that's entertaining to the audience. And he finds a way to get people to do what he wants while having them think they're doing what they want. I love that. I love that. All right. The reason why I still watch Survivor and I came back after a long uh, uh, hiatus was because, David, in the area of, uh, era of reality TV where we can – see the strings pulling the puppet on so many shows. We, we tend to not believe what we're watching, yet we still watch it because it's cheap and easy entertainment. I still feel like Survivor is as real as it can be. Yeah, there's rule changes on the fly for entertainment purposes, but, you, but the things you're telling me, the things I perceive, this is as close to a sport as possible. We can do podcasts like this where we rank the greatest because it's a competition and there's a training to get there. There's methods, there's all that. What was something on your uh, short journey there that surprised you that, that, you know, was real or that made it harder or something in that line where you're like, damn, this really is a competition. So I had practiced with Flint and a machete before I went on the island. And I didn't realize how tired and how hungry I would be when the game even first started. And we couldn't make fire. We could not get, we could, we had no flint. We couldn't find a way to put sticks together. I tried to channel castaway, ironically, given the way I look right now, <laughs> could not rub sticks together to make a fire. And uh, the hunger, the thirst is real. I didn't realize how hard it is to open a coconut. I mean, it's hard. And all the things that you just sort of take for granted that I didn't have to do in my life because I'm so privileged, all of a sudden it's down to the bare necessities and uh, you need food and you need shelter. 
Those are two things that matter. And you can't get to the gameplay without those two. And those two are much harder than you think. How can you put into words what the deprivation, whether it be dehydration, uh, lack of sleep, lack of food does to the mind? How hard is it to stay strategically sound? Because it's easy to watch the show and be like, what an idiot. Why did he do that? What's it like in it? Yeah, I don't think people realize that the hunger is real. Now, there's camera people around and producers and sound people, and they get to eat. So, you know, they've got fanny packs and they're eating granola bars. They try to hide it from you, but they're eating because they're working. It's their job. They're not playing Survivor, but the hunger's real. And even though there's some challenges and rewards, you get sick when you, you know, if you talk to people who've been on reward challenges, food challenges, you know, you get sick. They don't show that on TV, but the sickness and the stomach ache and the, the upset stomach that you have and the digestive issues because your body's not used to it. When you shove hamburgers or pizza into your mouth after not eating and just eating rice, it's a problem. And so, you know, that part, that part is really on point. Now, what about uh, what's the worst hygiene element? Because everyone's probably cornered you and asked you 50 questions about what people smell like, where you go in the bathroom. What's the hardest hygiene element when you're in not even third world, you're in barbaric conditions? There. So I was not able to take an aqua dump. And that's the only way you can. You have to go into the ocean. They tell you where you can go to go to number two. And you're, spo- and you're supposed to practice it before the game starts. And I could never sort of ease my abdomen enough to do it. The good news is I had nothing to eat, so I didn't have to go. But I I tried during the course of my three days in the water and just couldn't ever do it. So that was much harder than I ever expected it to be. Wow, that is how the sausage is made and delivered right there. In closing, you only had to go three days. So I can't ask you what's it like on day 28 when your stomach is eating itself. But if we did a two-man edition of Survivor, Survivor Season 41 titled Grudge Match, Two men on an island alone. Who lasts longer, David Sampson or Derek Jeter? <laughs> well, it depends. What tools do we have? Does he have any weapons of any kind? No, no. So no. it's just the two of us trying to survive? Yes. You know, it's funny. Derek and I, we, had, uh, we worked together when he was trying to buy the team, and, and he was trying to get me to like him, thinking that would help choose him to be the uh, buyer of the Marlins. I didn't care. I mean, I knew that he was being nice to me only because he thought that that would make me somehow favor his group. I didn't fall for that. It was like a little game of survivor is selling the Marlins. That's what that was getting people to bid against each other, getting people to think that someone else was hating them or someone else was bidding more money. So I'd love to be on an Island with Derek and just sit him down and say, Hey, not so easy running a team, is it, Derek? <laughs> Text that, Derek. All right, indeed. David Sip, this was a joy to behold. I, I definitely encourage the uh, listeners to check out what you're doing on Nothing Personal with David Sip. I mean, it's only business. It's nothing personal, okay? Uh, fantastic work with the beard, the charity, all that stuff. Great chatting with you, my friend. Thank you so much. All right, I promised you a survivor expert and there's no man, there is no man that I would that I could turn to out of any other unless Rob Sesternino was available. His name is Eric Raskin. He's a beloved boxing journalist, the co-host of the Showtime Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney, and the author, yes, of uh, 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 poker. <laughs> the, uh, no, the, I mon- just, the moneymaker effect? The, the moneymaker effect, yeah. yes, how... How poking changed the world. Uh, it is Eric Raskin, <laughs> King of Prussia's finest. Rask, you and I for a long time have been trading unnecessarily long survivor emails, breaking down crazy episodes, pitching ideas for podcasts. 
Well, we failed in all those attempts, but we made it right now, Rast. So thank you for joining me. And thank you, Brian, for I believe you are the person who uh, woke me up to the fact that Rob Sesternino has a podcast, uh, which I, I, I want to say it was like 2013, maybe, that you mentioned to me that, that he has this podcast. I think he had ha- just had a, your, your buddy Coach Benjamin Wade on at the time. Yes. I checked out that episode. I've been hooked ever since. Uh, I, so I, I am a Survivor super fan. Expert is maybe eh, questionable, but I've seen every episode. I love the show. And uh, and I listen to multiple podcasts every week from the Rob Sester Nino Network. So I am I am all about Survivor, and I am I'm fired up to talk with you about. Well, that's it. a good uh, reference there on Rob because you know he's created a cottage industry around the idea of taking reality shows and kind of making them like sports. Rask, and if you look at Survivor's history, forty seasons. And the longevity, I mean, you you now can do things like what we're going to do today, rank the best players, look at this as a sporting competition, and uh, shout out to those guys for doing it. They have, uh, you know, I don't listen to Rob anymore, but I could because he's got every person on after they get voted off. I mean, they cover that well, so I'm pumped up and excited. Of course, people know you as a SOC regular. You know, you had great appearances on the uh, on the Cobra Kai uh, you know, review show the uh, yes. the, the great uh, Mark Mark for Death one. Yeah, blood clot. <laughs> yeah, Shout out to you, uh, everyone, on that one. Uh, Rask, let's start at the beginning here. Um, I've laid out my fandom in the past. Watched the first three seasons under heavy, heavy, uh, <laughs> heavy doses of. Uh, <laughs> of uh, <laughs> yeah, all right. Those were the days back then. Uh, stopped watching. Found out, like I mentioned a lot, that my parents, you know, about 10 years later, I'm like, wait, this show's still on and you guys still watch it? They're like, we VHS every episode. I'm like, what? I got back in around, remember that one with Colby, the Texan? Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was like season 20-ish, right? When, when, when he came back for what would have been, I guess, his third appearance, uh, was that? Heroes versus villains. Is that the season you're talking about? I believe that was the one right around there. If not, I believe it may have been a couple seasons before that. Maybe it was the uh, Survivor Tonkatons. Maybe it was that one. (laughs) Token Sheens. Yeah, however you want to go there, probes. Uh, But the point is, I've been (laughs) diehard since then. So if if that was the show that got me back in, that's, uh, you know, season 18. 2009 so the last decade but i do have a gap as we talked about right there from season four through about 18 i only know the flashbacks that they've shown tell the people your survivor history all right sad to say i'm basically your parents in this scenario um i'm that guy who my my wife uh my wife would basically (laughs) say to me like how can you still be watching this show? Nobody watches this show anymore. When in fact, it was still always getting 10 million viewers every week, uh, even even at its low, lower points. But yeah, so I uh, the only episodes I did not wit- watch as they aired was the first half of the first season. When it was becoming a phenomenon, I was like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't seem like it's for me. Around the middle of the first season, I started watching. I think maybe the Jervis Boot episode. Yes. Uh, and then, and then uh you know, I thought it was fine, whatever. It was the second season, the Australian Outback, when I really was like, whoa, this show's phenomenal. I'm a super fan. And I went back eventually and watched the first half of the first season. But ever since then, I have seen every episode, uh, never missed one. And starting with season 29, I believe it was, my kids started watching with me. Uh, My son was only like four and a half at the time. So basically he was into the challenges and didn't know what the hell was going on otherwise. But uh, but now, yeah, my kids uh, watch with me every week and my wife still thinks it's stupid. 
All right. Well, my wife was a little slow in allowing the kids in because of the constant uh, underwear modeling by the uh, by the increasingly skinny women as the episodes go went on. And you and I, you know, we've had a couple after hours discussions about that same actual topic about sometimes you're left. You know, who who am I left to look at here? It's here for that's another topic. My kids also in their 12 year old twins. They are diehard suddenly a couple seasons in. Here's the actual response when your wife put you on the spot. You still watch this crap? I like you. I like sex. It's nice. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Enjoy that. Unfortunately, uh, watching Survivor and getting to take part in sex do not necessarily go together. Uh, well, they do on a solo level. If you're not just, just kidding, just yeah, so gross. Just kidding. All right. Um, so, Rask, we look at this as a sport, man. It's crazy. It's um, even though I do believe and I give Jeff Probst, the executive producer and host and all of them credit for. The evolution of the show, even though I do believe there's manipulation within the season, right, to drop in rules at a certain time to kind of create drama. I believe of all the reality shows of its kind that it's the most that's still pretty pure as a competition. You know, they don't they don't tend to if they want somebody to win, they don't go out of their way. To, to make them win. They do sometimes, like I mentioned, swerve a little to create scenarios, but Look, reality TV is 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 rarely ever real. I think this is as close as it gets, correct? Uh yeah, I think so. I mean, there definitely is some manipulation and I think some people will point to there's a current streak of I think maybe the last 6 winners in a row have all been men, something like that 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 maybe there's something a little fundamentally wrong with uh with the direction the game is going in in that regard, but it is it's interesting that you talk about comparing it to a sport because I think we really felt that more profoundly this spring than ever before when there were no sports and Survivor, uh, the the um, winners at war season with all the all stars coming back, all the champions coming back, um, seemed to absorb some of the attention that people normally would have been giving to sports. It sort of felt like one of one of America's prime sports for uh, for a couple months there. Uh, so there there is that element to it. It is legitimately competitive like that's I think the number one thing that I watch for is the strategy and the competition and the way these people fight to win. And this is like why I am not a fan of The Amazing Race, for example, um, that like I know some people love that show. My wife actually likes that show more because it's got a lot of travel elements and all competitively. It sucks. These teams <laughs> like they go on all these hunts, all these missions, they do all this stuff, and then they all just catch up to each other at the airport and they're all tied again. Yeah, and and it, it happens every week. And after a couple seasons, I was like, I can't watch this crap. Is it an elimination episode? I don't know. Let's see right. who wins first and then we'll decide. You know, it's like, <laughs> Right. Exactly. So that that is less like a pure sport uh, survivor it, within the reality realm. Sure. It's 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 fairly close to a, a legit competition, I'd say. All right. Uh, people need to f- remember and something that came up in the uh, in the Ethan Zahn interview that the that the listeners just heard you have not heard that at this point uh we need to remember at least the first three seasons what an absolute phenomenon it was when i asked ethan about you know essentially becoming a celebrity and and going on to date jennifer love hewitt for a short period uh 33 million people watched his finale of season three when he won uh you know the same amount when he came back in 2004 for the for the debut episode right after the super bowl after the patriots won it just to put into perspective i mean season one and i and even two i mean it was so musty tv that it was like get your closest friends get to their apartment get a case of of bush bush heavy 
uh, you know, add some other party favors in there and, and let's get down to business. I remember buying the People magazine after season one that was almost like a yearbook of that season. Uh, it, it's that's crazy. But what's even crazier, Rask, is what we started the show talking, that it's evolved to the point where 10, 15 years later, I didn't even know it was still a show. And I was like, what? This is still happening? How is this not on my radar? Oh, and it's still really good. Let me kick it off to you. How has this show been able to maintain where, yeah, they're not doing $33 million an episode, but they're on CBS, which gets big-time ratings, and you and I are nerds that still care about it? Yeah, they, they settled into their core fan base of somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million or so people who were just, uh, you know, all, all in and on board for the ride wherever it was going at a certain point. And it does feel like they've started to maybe build the, the fan base back up, tap into a new generation a little bit. But, yeah, it's it is about the the evolution and the adjustments. Uh, I think there are people, there are purists who will look back at those first couple of seasons when uh, there weren't big twists and big rule changes and, and say that that was like the best version of Survivor and they've tinkered with it too much now. But the fact is, you have to tinker. You have to keep innovating. This show's not going to last 20 years and 40 seasons if you just keep rolling out the show that you rolled out for the first two or three seasons when Ethan Zahn was playing. Like, you know, it, the game moves so much faster now. And I think I, I heard Ethan talk about that in some interviews that he, that he was doing uh, uh, shortly after his season, this la latest season ended. He was like the prototype for how you play the game perfectly in the earliest seasons. He was basically be the assistant captain, not the captain, do well, but not too well, be likable, be part of the majority alliance. Um, somewhere along the line, the show you still had to do all those things, but you also had to build a resume. And so that added this layer to it where you can't be totally under the radar. You can go under the radar in spots. Um, as, uh, as as Tony Vlachos proved this last season, he started out trying to be under the radar just so he could get deep into the game. But you can't play a whole game under the radar and have a chance at winning the way you could back in the, the early seasons um, or in the middle season specifically, if you got to the end against Russell Hance, you could play, you could beat him just by doing nothing and getting to the end and everybody hates him. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are certain, I, I give the survivor creators and Probst and whoever else is in on it so much credit for constantly tinkering with it to keep it fresh. A lot of stuff works. A lot of stuff doesn't work at all, but they're constantly trying and you can just see like the gameplay evolving along the way. Um, it's, it's a, there's an interesting thought experiment of just like how important Richard Hatch, that first season inventing oh. alliances, basically uh, that I guess it was 16 players, 15 of them probably showed up thinking they're just playing an individual game. And, had Hatch not been there, you know, what does Survivor look like after two years or five years or 10 years? Or does it last anywhere near that long if he doesn't form an alliance and, and it just instead it's this every person for themselves game? It's a fascinating thought experiment of how he completely changed what I think they had in mind for the show. And if he doesn't show his wang and his. In his uh, <laughs> well, it was Blurkle. It was Blurkle. Well, you know, Survivor was uh, ahead of the game on being woke. And I think that's a big part of it, too. It's not, you know, Ethan nailed it earlier when he said it, it, it's the ability to make it welcoming for families that you're creating essentially second and third generation fans. That's a big part. I mean, he talked about the edge of extinction element that's been added into recent episodes as that's almost drastic. If you look at it, a separate part of the main episode where the main part of the episode is we're competing for this, this money prize. 
But this edge of extinction side of it is all about the personal journey. So they've made it in some ways less about survival because it really hasn't been about survival in a long time. You know, people that didn't watch in the beginning, not just was it the fact that, like you mentioned, you could go a whole season with one blindside. You've been waiting 10 weeks to finally get a blindside. Like that was the moment. Now you got four blindsides an episode, but you're also not like, oh my God, can they physically do this? Like that rarely comes up anymore unless there's extreme heat or an injury or something like that. So that has helped uh, get it away from like shock value, naked and afraid television and more into what it's now. It's now a very woke show in good ways. It's now a very inspirational show. It's now a lot of different things at one. That's a key part of the longevity. Obviously right now, this month, this week, it couldn't be. We couldn't pick a better time, Ras, to have these type of discussions because they just wrapped season forty in May was the finale. You mentioned it, winners at war. This is the ultimate All Star game. We've seen All Star seasons in the past, but this season was essentially aimed at let's legitimately grab who we believe close enough to be our best players. It's it's not all the best, right? There are a couple recency bias ones that you throw in there to keep the, the the newer viewers and I'm sure you can't you know you can't get everybody but this is the closest it came to the idea of legitimately crowning the goat you know the best of all time so good timing in that regard and uh you know shout out to them again for for constantly tweaking this and making it making it something worthwhile it seems like survivor meant different things to different people at different points yeah, it's always been there, Rask. Uh, this guy Probst must be, uh, must have a couple mansions. Must be, uh, you know, he's all right. Uh, I feel like the guy. I feel like if we got to know that guy, we'd be disappointed. Um, that's a that's a good question. Would I like Jeff Probst if I hung out with Jeff Probst? I don't know, but that you know, you, you set me up for my uh, for for easily my best uh, survivor that I've met story. I'll tell oh, you a guy oh. that I that, I, that I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm hitting you early. I could have saved this for the end, but uh, a, a guy that. Uh, People might think not having not knowing him in real life the way I do. And by the, by knowing him in real life, I mean, I met him twice for like three minutes apiece. <laughs> but still, uh, good guy that you might not believe it. Boston Rob. I'm going to tell you I'm telling you the circumstances that I met him. 2005 World Series of Poker main event. I'm, uh, I'm out there as a journalist. I'm out on the I'm out on the floor and I see. One, uh, Amber Burkich, not yet, not yet married. I don't believe, I think they were engaged at the time. I see her like standing, uh, among the crowd kind of watching. So I follow her line of vision. I'm trying to like, see where she's looking. And I see a few tables into the field. There's Rob Mariano playing in the world series main event. I wait for a break, uh, when they all get up to go to the bathroom and, uh, and I, and I grab him, do a quick interview with him. Super nice guy. I get his address so I can send him the magazine when it's done. And, stalk and him. Brian, and, what's that? And maybe stalk him and get pictures of his wife. I, <laughs> I see where you're going with this. <laughs> no, no stalking. But so I sent it. So we did a quick interview. Nice guy. Send him the magazine. And how many times in your career, Brian, have you done a piece on somebody or whatever? And they like send you a personalized thank you note. It probably has happened to you like on, right, class, I was going to say, you can count class, him on one, one hand for sure. I mean, the, the guy, though, was Mike Tyson. He left me a voicemail. So oh, it's, wow. It's the, okay, greatest story. it's the greatest story ever. But yes, one time, Wyclef, that's happened. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it it so rarely happens. In this case, Boston Rob sent uh, sent uh, to our to our office uh, a personal handwritten thank you note. He loved the issue. He's going to keep buying the magazine. Thanks so much for uh, for sending it to him. Blah, blah, blah. Signed, Boston Rob. So good dude, wow. Boston Rob. Shout out to that. I have one story outside of interviewing Ethan Zahn and outside of working 
with David Sampson, former Marlins president who was voted off in the in the first episode in 2014. Um, Rask, I went to the uh, 2002 NBA draft at the theater at Madison Square Garden. And this reminds you, you know, the one thing in Survivor that reminds you how quickly we've evolved and woke as a society was that time they had that old guy from season one, Rudy, interviewed in the crowd a couple years back, right? <laughs> he was in his yeah. 80s by that point, And he made in a one minute interview, like seven different inappropriate comment about the gays and about all that stuff. But but just to let you know, on that level, um, 2002 NBA draft, if you remember, Rest, that's the Yao Ming year. Okay. Amari Stoudemire, Mike Dunleavy, uh, uh, a couple others like that. I go with my cousin. We wait all day outside for tip to wait in line for the free tickets. We're in the crowd. I'm drunk as a skunk. And just to show you how how uh, inappropriate those times were, when Yao Ming gets announced as the first pick, and they're showing him on video live in China with his parents, and it's this great cultural moment, we're yelling, USA, go away, like, go back, you know, like, what What are we doing, why? Oh, why? no, oh, no, don't admit this, Brian, Why are Come we on. doing that? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, a couple minutes later, I'm, I, I, I turn the corner at, to head to the bathroom, and I see Jervis, is it Peter, Jervis Peterson? Yeah, that's right. From Philly. From Philly, season one. Like the, like, you know, good guy, all that. I go, Jarvis! Jarvis! He's like, <laughs> hey, what's up? He turns around and I, and, you know, I'm basically, if you, if you listen to the boxing podcast, I'm campioning Jarvis Peterson. <laughs> nice. Only I'm not here to pluff his bag. I go, hey, Jarvis, that 15 minutes up yet? And I look at my watch and start tapping it. And he gave me the saddest look like, oh, come on. And uh, I, I feel I regret that in hindsight. I wish I wish I could go back in time to that moment and turn to Jarvis and say, hey, don't worry, buddy. You're going to be back in a blood versus water season about 10 years from now. Your 15 minutes still has 30 you, seconds you left. A couple more minutes left in there. All right. Uh, we love us some Survivor. Um I don't know. You know, I don't I don't really plan stuff out, Rast. So let's just wing it. Let's just balls wing it here. Um, there is this idea of treating this like a sport. And if season 40 with Tony Vlachos winning the, the, the cops, cops are us, all that winning a second time. It did bring up the conversation that I like having here. The idea of who is the greatest survivor player of all time. Now, to get there, though, I want to ask some fundamental questions about Winning Survivor, stuff that you sort of teased in the beginning. Most times, Rask, it's three people going to the final vote. It's America voting. I'm sorry. It, it's it's a, no, it's not America voting. It's the it's the jury. <laughs> Let definitely me get it not right. America voting. Let me get it right. It's the jury. So it, it does create that interesting dynamic where everyone that you potentially piss off and eliminate, you have to find a way to show them that you did it for the game. I still do. Uh, what's the word? I still do find it interesting, Ras, that we're 40 seasons into this and people still take blind sides so damn personally. Now, I have to, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're not watching this season for multiple camera reviews with the confessional interviews. They're in their own paranoid, under eaten right. state, you know, emotions come out. But there's times when people don't realize that the game is the game, to quote The Wire. Like, it is. Like, it, like you can't win most times without doing some dirt, without cutting people's throats. So that's interesting. But if three people make the finals, you normally have a GOAT, somebody that's easy, somebody that you drag there that can't win. They're only there because they did nothing all year. Right. You tend to have a... Alpha one of the two people who have a chance, somebody that was more aggressive, won more challenges... But you know what I hate the most, Rask? 
when the B-side wins only because they were likable. And there are many moments in that, including recently, where, you know, when they brought back at season 40 winners and Michelle Fitzgerald comes back, for example, Mm -hmm. I'm like, she won? What? And then you go back (laughs) and you look, you're like, oh, I hated that season, you know? And I go back to, and I don't mean to bring up multiple times when it was females, but there were a few of those in recent years where a female won, you're like, they didn't deserve it. They didn't get it. So this is my long-winded way to ask you, Eric Raskin, is this game set up where not only does mediocrity give you a better chance to win, but the whole point is to is to like lower your value the whole season so that you have this chance at the end. Am I right or wrong on that? Uh, you're you're partially right. This is like something that I have debated in my mind many times when the handful of times over 40 seasons, I'm going to say there are maybe three or four times where to the viewing audience, it seemed like they gave it to the wrong person at the end. Now, there are countless times that the person who was playing the best game got eliminated at like final four or final three back when they only had a final two where you were just playing too well. And if you didn't win that final immunity, clearly they had to take you out. But I'm just talking about the final vote. There have been a handful of times where it felt to us as viewers like they got it wrong. Sometimes that's maybe the edit. Um, Sometimes it's the bitter jury or or something to that effect. Um, But there's this question that I've had in my mind that I don't really know if there's a clear answer, but I sort of lean toward whoever wins always deserves it because that's how the game is set up is that this jury of your peers is voting and working. The jury is part of it. And the jury's opinion of who deserved to win can't be wrong. There's no wrong opinion. It's who did the better job of getting to the final against the opponent with the jury that everything was uh, pointed towards the jury, giving them the votes. Um, I think luck is a huge part of it. And this I can tie in my poker background with this, that it Survivor is a game of a lot of skill, uh, being decent at challenges, being good around camp, building social relationships, playing the strategy smart, all those things. But there's always so much luck thrown in. You get a the tribes reshuffle the wrong way for you and suddenly you're on the wrong side of the numbers you get uh you know i I always go back to that first russell hance season was this when you were watched had you come back to the show in time for the first russell hance season or 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 not i can't quite uh, tell your timing i saw his second season i'm trying to figure out the actual year i came back um when parvati won at season 16 micronesia i was not watching oh no Um, it's one of the greatest seasons ever i'm I'm thinking it was potentially Potentially uh, Survivor Samoa or or the Tonkin. So so, so, Samo- so Samoa is the first Russell season. Is that the and first one? Okay, then then I did yeah. see it. Yes. Okay. 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 So so he no, came no. from out of nowhere. I'm going to pause you and tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I, I pause just for the figured, cause. I just figured out exactly when I came back. Two okay. seasons after that, Survivor Nicaragua. Chase Rice was that Texan guy I was talking <laughs> yeah. about. He came in second. Uh, Fabio Judd Burza won that. That was my comeback. Okay, keep going. So wait, so that's before Samoa or it's, after it's Samoa? The season, it's two seasons after Samoa. So Oh, Heroes, so you did not watch Samoa. I did not watch Heroes, Villain, Villains. Oh, no. BC, no Heroes versus no. Villains. So, Come so on, I classic. Histo- I have historic holes that you will fill today, Raz. <laughs> um, okay, so... <laughs> so let, so I'm going to give you the, the one-sentence description of what happened in Samoa is Russell is the the ultimate heel, the ultimate villain, 
but the ultimate like mastermind, he is running the whole game. He was the first player ever to find idols without clues. He like started, he started this whole trend that now exists constantly. If you go and you look for idols before that you needed clues, which would point you towards where the idols were. Russell shows up and says, I know that they usually hide the idols under a rock or under a bridge or tucked in a tree or whatever. And he just started looking for them on his own and kept found all these idols was running the whole game was just a complete D bag, a hole to everybody. Nobody liked him. And he gets to the final against this 22 year old blonde girl named Natalie white, who had done nothing that we had seen all season. She just coasted along. She was the ultimate goat. Russell had it all figured out. He got to the final against his goat. This was going to be an easy win. And the jury voted against him because they hated him. And so, and so it seemed to the viewer like, Oh my God, they totally screwed this up. This jury sucks. But you can say that's the way the game is built. If you can't make the jury like you enough to give you that vote at the end, or at least convince them that they should be voting for you because of how well you played the game and put aside their dislike for you, which a lot of finalists have successfully done that they get to the final, they know everyone hates them and they, and they put up a compelling argument that you need to vote for me. Uh, You know, Russell didn't do that. So you could say, no, the jury didn't get it wrong. Russell played a 99% perfect game. And the 1% that he screwed up on the social game was so bad that he deserved to lose. So it's this constant debate, but the Michelle Fitzgerald, example is another perfect one aubrey deserved to beat her in the eyes of us the viewing audience for whatever reason out there in in the game aubrey came up a little short of convincing the jurists of of what she she played a little too under the radar we saw her running the show they didn't realize she was running the show so it's it's fascinating i'm glad you brought up season 19 in which russell deserved it the goat natalie white wins it because i believe season 23 was one of the more heartbreaking ones for me being a big Benjamin Coach Wade fan, he had that one decision at the end that that decided his future. He made the wrong decision on who to keep, and Sophie Clark got a victory. Even though Sophie Clark's a good player, not a great Mm -hmm. player in my eyes, she got the victory I didn't think she deserved because Coach screwed up. There are other times, like the Michelle Fitzgerald, where it's just like, what is happening here? So what percentage of this then, when it comes down to winning it, is luck in your eyes? I think it's become increasingly about luck as it's gone along. Like you look at those first three seasons or whatever. Yeah. There's, there's always going to be some luck who you're matched up with on your tribe and stuff like that, that you can't control. But for the most part, those early seasons, there weren't, there weren't these twists that were going to completely throw your, throw you off your game. And um, there weren't all these idols and the, you know, the randomness of, like you think of a few seasons ago, Sheree Fields gets to the final six. Every single person in the final six has some kind of immunity advantage, and she gets eliminated from the game just because every single other person had some sort of protection. And so even though nobody was ready to vote her out, she goes home. So, I mean, that's like the ultimate case of bad luck. Um, Yeah, the more twists that there are in the game, the more that luck plays into it, the more they shake up the tribes and put you on a new tribe two or three different times. Um, I'm going to say, boy, what percentage is luck? And I, was, I don't know, something something like a fairly high percentage, like 30 percent. You know, if you're comparing it to other sports, uh, that's a pretty high percentage, probably something like 30 percent of just you need you need the breaks to go your way. Uh, and and then and then the 70 percent or so is just having having that skill set and knowing how to uh, balance the social game, the strategy, 
the physical game, all that stuff. Rest, do you look back and see any particular season or moment that was some of these turning points we talk about where uh, it no longer was the idea of let me build my tribe, let me brainwash and, and fear and build fear in them to stay with me, and then let me pick them apart and try to pull off. You know, the, when Boston Rob won in such a brilliant manner the most recent time, uh, I believe that was Survivor 22 Redemption Island. I right. feel like that's the last time you could even do that that way. It was like an old school way of winning in a modern time. Is there any kind of turning points that uh, that stick out to you where it's like the, the forever now the game will be played this way? I feel like there were a couple steroid seasons, I call them, where yeah. every single week we're trying to blindside people. And now it's just become part of the fabric. Right. So I guess, you know, the first turning point in a sense would be that Ethan's on season Africa was the first time that you have your two tribes and they're all figuring out their plans for how they're going to get to the merge. And then they did like a tribe. They did a tribe swap that nobody knew they were allowed to do. And it completely shifted the game. That was, I say, the first one. I think the Russell Hans season, the first time that he changed the game in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, also, just like reignited interest in the show at a critical point when I think it was flagging. He came along at the perfect time for that. But I'm going to say, uh, you know, that since then, the, I feel like the first Tony Vlacho season, season 28, yes. was it Kagayan? Um, he played this game in a way that shouldn't have been able to win. He made a lot of mistakes. He played it so big and so bold and took such chances and was blindsiding people Two, two eliminations before anyone was thinking it was the right time to start blindsiding people. He was making all these moves and he would screw up and piss people off and figure out a way to get those people back on his side. And he sort of created this idea that after that, it felt like you the big move era began. Like you had to make big moves. You had to build a resume. You had to have a couple of things that when you got to the end, you could point at and say, I engineered your your blindside, your ouster, and I'm not going to apologize for it because I outplayed you. Uh, th those sort of things. There was some of that existed in Survivor prior to Tony, but he took it to this new level where I feel like almost every season since then, uh, players have played very consciously thinking about uh, even if they even if they can't quite follow the Tony blueprint. They have to there have to be various layers to their game. It can't just be like the Boston Rob season that, that he won, where it's I am going to just mind control everyone, <laughs> get the numbers and and and, and dominate in that way. Um, Kim Spradlin, when she won, that was somewhere right around the same era as when yeah. Boston Rob won. Totally dominant performance just by controlling everyone with the social and strategic game. I, I, you, you just can't do that anymore. There are too many twists to the game, too many idols and, and landmines that are going to go off. You have to be willing to start with one strategy, adjust, readjust. Re and we saw that from Tony this last season, the way that he made all these adjustments and was able to somehow win again playing his crazy style. So that's a great setup to now the debate of who's the greatest and that because people have played multiple times, it's added the idea of having multiple seasons or performances. So you can judge somebody who's only played once or twice, but was dominant against somebody who's played four or five times and has had not only, uh, you know, high finishes or memorable moments, but have become such parts of the fabric of the show 
that that weighs into the idea of being a GOAT as well. So I'm going to put Eric Raskin on the spot. You have a greater grasp of history, although I, of course, will share my uh, opinions within this debate. Can you, Eric Raskin, count down from 5-1 to one after spending much of your uh, off time pausing your, your fatherhood and marriage to, to do this for the people here? 5-1, <laughs> to one, the greatest players, 40 seasons in on Survivor. All right, all right. I, I put a list together before we started. Um, I have two names. Here comes number five. <laughs> well, okay, no more creepy sound effects. Go for it, yes. So uh, I have two names that just missed. I basically had like seven I was considering. Do you want to know uh, at the top who my sort of unofficial runners-up were, or no, should I just no, no, no. hit those at the end because that'll that'll give away too yes. much at the beginning? Suspense. We need suspense on that. All right, all right, all right. So we'll get to those later. So number five, I actually was kind of looking for an excuse not to put this person in my top five. I really wanted to, and I just couldn't. I felt like I had to put her in the top five, and it's Sandra Diaz-Twine, the oh, first two-time yes. winner. Uh, and oh, I, and then maybe you? that maybe I have her too low in the opinion of some people who would put her, like, top three. But, man, she she – this last season – the way that she screwed herself, uh, so she made such a misplay with that idol with Denise. That that was bad. I know. Lap. I know you want to interrupt me. Okay, fine. Go ahead, BC. It was a vi- her last two seasons were victory laps. They were just like celebrity appearances. They built a statue right. for her. You cannot count this against what the queen has built, Rask. Okay? okay. Okay. So then let me. So then let me poke a little hole in the two seasons that she won. And she is a great player. She absolutely is. Uh, probably prior to this season, I would have had her more like number three or so. Um, but uh, her first season that she won was a, a classic case of her strategy fits with what her strengths are, which is she's never going to do well in challenges. She ha- she has to play the, the social game and the strategic game only. Basically, she she sits out of every challenge now. Um, but <laughs> she's, uh, the DH. She, she, she's the but, DH of Survivor. Come on. Right. Exactly. So she she. The first season, she got to the end and was kind of lucky to be up against a, a, a total goat in the finals, while the bigger characters of the season, like Johnny Fairplay and, and Rupert, uh, had, had fallen by the wayside shortly before the end. She played a good game, but it wasn't like one of those seasons where, based on that single win, you would say she was an all-time great player. She, was, she seemed like a mediocre winner relative to others after the first one. And the second one... She played a, another outstanding game in Heroes versus Villains against a unbelievably stacked cast, but I didn't think she deserved to win. I thought Parvati deserved to win that season, but because Parvati had won a couple seasons before, I think that's the main reason the jury leaned towards Sandra. She has two wins. Neither win on its own is an A-plus kind of win. She's my number five. Great player, but a lot of holes in her game, and she, uh, I, th- I thought her, her third time back she did pretty well. Uh, given that she had a huge target on her. She played smart and last as long as she could. This last time out, I thought she stunk. She did stink, and she gave up in this last time out. Uh, yeah. Thank you for putting her on your top five, because we would have major issues if you didn't. <laughs> I do think you can argue her as high as two. I do think there needs to be a line where she can't be the greatest of all time for some of the reasons that you said. But not only is she an icon, not only was she able to win twice, which I don't care how you get there. You win twice. That's yeah. pretty crazy. And to do it as a complete non-physical threat. And Rask, I will add this. To do it as essentially a villain who, like, like, look, we love villains. I want to, I want to, you know, count down and later in the show some memorable villains. But it's hard to win as a villain, 
and she does it with intimidation and has success in this way. And I think when she was a quote unquote coach that year with Rob a couple seasons ago, that's that's a big moment in a way. That's like mm-hmm. putting you in the Hall of Fame. So right. to not be in the top five would have been a crime. I can see <laughs> the areas where she's overrated, but I look at it more as not overrated. She's a somewhat limited player who takes what she has and makes those elements so strong and delivers like gangster type quotes. That's what you get for plotting against me. Good job. That's what you get and the queen stays queen. Uh, the queen stays queen is a line that I yell almost every episode at some point <laughs> to where my wife and kids are just like, shut up. Like to me, Rask, and I know Susan Hawk's speech, like to me, you want to talk about iconic, like moments or, or phrases that come up a lot outside of all the tired ones that probe says every single time right. in the same places, which are part of the game's fabric. Sandra's the goods. I mean, I mean, it's hard to do it with intimidation and she does it. So shout out to her at number five. I would personally with my somewhat limited knowledge, probably have her at three, but let's keep going. I, th- I think you could at this point, you could make a case for as high as four. I can't put her higher than that. But um, yeah, and like I said, I had uh, I was looking for excuses not to put her in the top five and I couldn't do it. I ultimately couldn't do it. So. All right. Number four. Um, this is someone who played uh, the closest thing we've ever seen, perhaps to a perfect game. Uh, but her stock may have dropped a little bit this last season, and it's Kim Spradlin. Yes. Um, her for a first for a first appearance on the show, she was as dominant as anyone has ever been. I think some people will say that she got the benefit of being up against a weak cast, a weak group of opponents her first season. That's possible. But I think this time out, even though she didn't go all the way in uh, in Winners at War, she went deep enough without being in control of the game to prove that she had some layers and some dimensions, but it's mostly, this is about how dominant Kim Spradlin was the first time she played. She just had every single player wrapped around her finger and never made a misstep and is just so great at the kind of game that she plays. I recognize everything you said about her one season. We will count down what we think is the greatest performance in a single season. She's obviously in that. I don't think she can be in the top five for what I know because that second appearance was not only underwhelming, she did show some things, but I felt like she was almost not trying to win on the same level. She was sort of like, well, this is an all-star game. We'll see what happens. It's going to be hard to win the $2 million. We'll do what I got to do, whatever. Where I almost feel like, Rash, she could have benefited, and could it have been hard to put her in a top five with one appearance and one win? It's an argument. But I think she could have benefited from a Kurt Cobain-like exit. No, I'm not saying shoot yourself, but I'm saying, Raz, you and I both understand that Nirvana is a hell of a band. Yes, they were part of a shift musically, but they have been given sainthood on a level that I don't always believe they deserve just because they checked out early. They didn't check out early as like... uh is like a uh, uh, who's the guy who uh, Jeff Buckley, you know, that type of stuff like guys who have one album and they die and you're like, well, it would have been great. I mean, Nirvana gave us something to deal with. But I feel right. like if she only gave us that first season, we would have more of a legendary air to her. She was the bitter, angry, divorced woman and she brought it. But uh, <laughs> she won't be in yeah. my top five. But I, I certainly respect the game. And did she get like hotter between the two seasons? Uh, that's debatable. Um, I would say she maintained her status as, uh, a reasonable piece of eye candy as the top notch pieces of eye candy get eliminated early as they always do. Is I say that, bonsai uh... to that. Bonsai, yeah. Hey, bonsai! 
Bullseye BC. <laughs> Bullseye. Uh, yes. No, but you're absolutely the Nirvana. The Nirvana parallel is, is accurate. Had she never played a second time, I think it would. I'd have a better case for her ranked as high as I do here. But I still think she that that season was just spectacular. And it's tough to come back the second time. Look at what happened to Tony his second time out. It was a disaster. So. Maybe, maybe I don't think she'll ever play a third time, but if she did, maybe we'd see some new level. Anyway, I'm comfortable with her at number four. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Should I move on to number three? Please do. All right. Now we get to what I think the top three are. There's a line between the top three and and everyone below them. I I could not crack put Sandra Diaz in, in my top three at this point. My number three, the guy I met in person and sent me a nice note. Boston Rob just he he's done it so many times his first season okay he was kind of the stoner guy who like had some thoughts but couldn't play a complete game <laughs> by the second time back all-stars that's your that's one of your classic did they give it to the wrong person he probably deserved to win when they gave it to his soon-to-be wife Amber instead on Survivor All-Stars Smart he move played it by he, him allowing that to happen if he had any allowance in that you know? yeah <laughs> no i mean he look he wins either way but uh yeah so then he came back and uh it was heroes versus villains he didn't do so great but then he comes back a fourth time and plays if there's a if there's a a, a season that's on par with kim spradlin in terms of dominance for a single season it's uh it's boston rob winning uh what was that season called exile not Exile Island now, Redemption Island, something like that. I don't know. Redemption Island, maybe. It was called um, Redemption Island. It was season yeah. 22. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he was just so dominant. And I think you saw in the most in that recent season that he and Sandra were the coaches. Rob did almost all of the talking. And you could see how his mind is just like built for this game. And he knows every angle. The the scene in the first episode of Winners at War where he is just mind effing Ben Drebergen out on the beach into telling him exactly what he wants him to tell him. And Ben is like panicking. Boston Rob plays it at another level. He's always got a huge target on his back. And uh, and he did. He has now he's played five times and he's gone out pre-merge, I guess three out of five so that's why i have him at three and not at, at two or one um uh, but he's just a great player he really there's no there's no significant weakness in his game other than maybe he doesn't always do the best job of, of making people like him along the way i think three is the lowest you can have him i think he yep. is uh, yep. he is the first one that we've talked about that has a that is in the number one discussion if you have him at number one i will not say anything wrong about that and the main Agreed. reason rask is because he combines the two elements of the game at the highest level higher than anyone else meaning great player and most like beloved icon if he's on the season i'm going to watch it type of thing right you put those yep. together at that highest level no one does it that high and let's be honest what you mentioned he might be the smartest player in terms of looking at this as a game his ability over generations to adapt his game has been impressive and yep. his ability as a dad bod fat piece of ass <laughs> to stay competitive in competitions against younger folk is very applaud worthy he's become a fabric of the show where very few could have deserved what i mentioned having a statue built and be named a coach uh yeah if you have met one i think i'm gonna have him at two in my list but uh very very well deserved if you had him at four i would have ended the show but thank you keep going yeah yeah I, I agree with you three is the lowest and that's why i said four is the highest i could personally put sandra because i couldn't put her over boston rob or any of the other two people remaining so the one i have at number two I'm starting to get the feeling that maybe you missed this person's prime and don't realize how good 
she was at her peak, but it's Parvati Shallow. She the uh, the season she won fans versus favorites um, is actually questionable whether she deserved it or Amanda Kimmel deserved it. They got it to the end and I felt like it could have gone either way. But then to come back out with that giant target on her back as someone who just won it and play in heroes versus villains and, in my view, appear to deserve to win it when they gave it to Sandra, she made some of the most amazing moves in that season. And it doesn't hurt. I know we're going to talk about our favorite seasons later. It doesn't hurt that fans versus favorites and uh, and heroes versus villains are both all time seasons. And she went all the way through all of them. She, for a while, held the record for most number of days spent on Survivor. Her first season, she came in and was your classic, doesn't know what she's doing, just here to look good and flirt with guys. And she did lasted, I forget exactly where she got eliminated, but she did okay in the game, but nothing special. For her to then, during her time off, figure out how to play the game and play it as perfectly as she did, those two seasons that she played for almost back-to-back, she was just a, a force and just... Uh, controlling the game and, and just making brilliant moves. There's a classic scene where she had two idols and played neither of them for herself and instead played them for two of her alliance mates who were being targeted when she wasn't. She read the room perfectly and it's one of the all-time great tribal councils and she's just she's just a, a legend and I think uh, her Parvati at two, Boston Rob at three. They're almost interchangeable. That's a really tough and call And I think for me. she deserves uh, a chance at number one. I did miss her prime, but to see her come back in this, which could have been a victory lap performance, instead, she showed everything, Rask. I mean, she's brilliant. She's able to use the friendly, flirtatious side to get ahead if she wants. She's uh, she's almost a – she probably is a Boston Rob-level thinker of how this mm-hmm. game actually works. And to, and to be on that level, you have to know people and be able to yes. understand what they how they tick. She's a good uh, – obviously, great shape in a good uh, 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 challenge, challenge threat. Yeah, that threat. Sol- no, solid in the challenges. And I think she had had like baby, what, like a month or two before yeah, coming out for this season. That's crazy. Pretty insane. Crazy. All right. Rask, hit me. Hit me with the horns, Monty. What do you got for number one, the best player of all time? So I think everyone at this point knows who it is by process of elimination. This person could not possibly be lower than number three at this point. And really, I think it's getting close to an ironclad case for number one, Tony Vlachos. Yes. I mean, uh, Prior to this last season, my top five probably looks something like Parvati or Boston Rob for one, Sandra at three, and I don't even know if I'd put Tony in my top five based on how bad his second performance on this show was. But to win it twice in three tries, playing the kind of game that he does, there are only two two-time champions, and if I'm knocking Sandra as well, her two wins were both a little, Tony. Tony's two wins were both spectacular against tough groups of opponents. The way that he plays the game, and I think there was a a moment toward the end of this last season, it might have even been part of the the two-hour-long finale, where he's telling the other people, he's telling Sarah and the other people in his alliance, this person has an idol, and, and everyone else is like, no, you're wrong, Tony, and he's right. And then this person doesn't have an idol and they're all like, oh, no, that person might have an idol, Tony. And he's right again. His ability to read people, uh, that that's the, the cop thing, the detective thing. He can sniff it out. Uh, he will lie to you. And and some even though you 
everyone suspects him of lying. They somehow fall for it ultimately anyway. I don't, the, he's just an amazing player, and I think a pretty clear-cut choice for the greatest player of all time after what he just pulled off. I know, and it's almost like, and I agree with you, and it's almost like you want to go, oh, that's recency bias, but it's not. Just the yeah. fact alone that he won this super all-star season and did it the way he did is a huge sort of uh, you know stake in his corner to being the potential GOAT. But I look at so many things, the innovation, the, the creation of the spy shack, stuff like that. He is, while I respect like Rob and Parvati, even Sandra for being great thinkers, I feel like nobody is thinking harder than Tony every mm-hmm. second of every episode. And he doesn't seem to get worn down by the stress no. of that. He's excellent in challenges. His ability to be almost the kind of guy that's so... He's so like he doesn't hide his danger. He's outwardly dangerous. He's he's the best idol finder and searcher that we've ever seen in this show. And he doesn't hide that yet to be able to survive and not survive in a way where I'm going to get the uh, the necklace every single time to try to just barely survive, even though everybody would have voted me out. He survives in different ways, almost showing people his villainry and then kind of talking them into supporting it or coming on board with it. He's incredible. He's he is next level, second generation, whatever, new school. But he he's absolutely incredible. I would love to see him rest. He could easily walk away now and be the best ever. But I would love yep. to see him get a couple victory lap opportunities in in some themed seasons to see mm-hmm. if he can pull this off again. Because it's so hard to do it when there's a crazy target on your back. Because there's no reason why people shouldn't eliminate you on day one. You know, day episode two, episode three. You should kind of be gone after right away yeah for him to take a, a great rising player in sarah lacina and almost man- use her but yet manipulate and keep her down through the through the grounds of friendship and love it's brilliant it's brilliant yeah it's- yeah and and in addition to being the greatest player of all time He's the hardest working player of all time. He plays the game the hardest. He doesn't need to sleep. He gets like no sleep and he's working all night when everyone else is sleeping. It's just amazing to watch. I don't know how he keeps his sanity under those conditions, but yeah, he is built for the game. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable what he pulled off. And yeah, I don't know if he could possibly, if, if he could come back another time and, and somehow make another deep run, it would be remarkable because the odds are so stacked against him. But I we I was part of a survivor pool going into this season with some old co-workers. And when somebody picked Tony Vlachos as their as to, per, to put on their fantasy team, uh, <laughs> when when the whole thing was you have to have the winner to win. That was what we were drafting for. I berated them and I was like, well, you picked the one person who has no chance of winning this game. And then he goes out and wins it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, shout out to him as well. All right, Raska, I got to try to keep us under two hours here. I mean, this is getting, this is awesome <laughs> and getting ridiculous. Um, people that could have been on that list but wasn't, I'm going to throw out Natalie Anderson. Right? She came from from uh, Amazing Race. Strong. She was a twenty, and for mm-hmm. her to be able to set herself aside, she's a physical beast. She's mentally tough as balls. I feel like she could win any season under any circumstance, and may continue to get that chance to add a second victory. Yeah, she's a she's a solid choice. The the two that I had as my as my just miss that I considered were Sarah Lucina, who has now played it three times and basically on, only ever lost to Tony in, in a sense. Like, um, so yeah, she won one out of three and and made a good run the other two and just just really has a pretty complete game we can see at this point. And my other one is is Yule Kwan, who yeah he wasn't that great in his return now, but he's kind of old and washed. He's about our age, which is old and washed. Um, but his first season, he was he took strategy to another level. The way he played his first season and his showdown with Ozzy in the final two is 
the stuff of legends. So I, I love me some Yul Kwan. I think he's close to this list. But I, yeah, ultimately, like I said, I couldn't put anyone above Sandra for that five spot. I've got her about as low as you could possibly have her. So that's my top five and who almost made it. Uh, let's quickly go through this because we touched it on it a lot. The idea of the greatest single season performance. Um, Kim's divorced year is, is up there for all the reasons we said she willed that to happen. She used an old school approach and so did Rob, as we mentioned right around that. I want to give Rob even more credit though, because that Re- redemption Island win at 22, Again, like when you come in, I think they only had two returning players that year, maybe. Right. It was in, Rob and Russell each had a tribe. Yeah. When you come in with that sort of like you're the guy that's there to teach everyone else how to play, but you're also the guy they're going to target instantly. That was next level brainwashing. Those yep. are my two choices. I'm a little bit more limited than you. Do you have anyone else that deserves in, in discussion along with Tony Vlachos's two wins uh, for best single season performance? So this is I did not prepare a list on this particular one, but I but I can just go off the top of my head that, yes, it's Boston Rob and Kim Spradlin that stand out. And and Tony's wins were incredible. And the only other one I'd throw in the mix would be in token sheens, JT, who was the good old boy. Everybody loved, but he also played a brilliant game, had a great uh, two two man team with him and Steven Fishback. And then he gets the clean sweep of like 10 votes to nothing over Fishback in the final. Now, JT got worse every time he played the game. His le- He chipped away at his legacy. He's Kurt Cobain living into his 40s and putting out <laughs> absolute crap like uh, soundtrack songs or whatever as he gets a little older. But uh, but that first season, JT was totally dominant. Yeah, Roy Jones Jr. after 2005, basically. Yes. Uh, shout out to that. I did also have a lot of respect. Uh, where, where was that here? Uh, for... Uh, the, the Tyson win, uh, 27 mm-hmm. blood versus water. Again, it's hard to win at that situation when you're, a, when you're a guy with have, who has a lot of history and he came in and played a near perfect game, won seven to one in the votes over Monica Culpepper and Jervis. Maybe there's two goats with him there and he played, but he played it perfectly. So shout yeah, out. Yeah. He played, he played great. Jeremy Collins when he won in, it was second chances. He played a phenomenal Cambodia. game. Yeah. Season 31, Cambodia. Cambodia. Okay. But, but I think it was Cambodia, but it was initially billed as like second. It was the one where you got voted to, uh, out of a group of players to, to come back on. And he played great. He's a great player. He's someone you probably put in your top 10 all time as well. But yeah, the, the these are some of the names uh, that, that played. And, and let's go Ethan Zahn in season three played a near perfect game for what the game was at the time. And in over three appearances has established himself as one of the game's icons and, and, and faces you think of instantly. So, uh, uh, why don't we go there? The idea of of a, of a true hero, because part of what makes the show great is the entertainment factor, cheering for somebody. Uh, can you give me a quick five on who you believe to be the the your favorite players of all time? All right, so. I, I was viewing this as most entertaining players. Uh, it's not quite favorite, right. but it's no, close to favorite. It's, it's in, in that, the same. Ballpark. It's in that realm where. It's not so much about winning and losing. It's about what right. you can add to the episode, which is a big part of us watching for so long. Right. So I have a spoiler before I hit my list, and I feel weird about this, but I got to come right out with it. There are no women on my list. And hey. I don't know if that says something about me or about the casting or about how Survivor edits women. Uh, I don't know, but I couldn't quite find any re- women to crack my top five most entertaining. Um, you know, there are some that are in the uh, Sandra's in the discussion. Uh, Sari Fields, uh, Jerry, the villain from season two, Australian yes. Outback, Jerry Manthe, yeah, she was on Lunch Lights. Lady Denise, uh, 
If you remember her, maybe you weren't watching that know. season. She was know. China, I believe. I think you weren't watching. Lunch Lady Denise was something special, but I couldn't quite put any in my top five. Oh, who was the Here- mother? The young mother? A couple years ago, she voted out her mom. She's a, she was. A oh, mom. uh, yeah. Uh, her name is. It's not Sari, but it's something like Sari. Uh, why can't Sierra. I think of it? Sierra, Sierra, thank you. There you go. Sierra Easton, that's right. Yeah. Very likable. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that she's super entertaining. And by the way, the whole voting out her mom thing is the most overrated moment in the history of the show. Her mom was going home no matter what. All she did was go along with the crap. It's not like she made the deciding vote on her mom, but all right, anyway. Um, So here's my top five, which is all dudes. And uh, as I look at it closely, all white dudes, boy, I'm going to get canceled Uh for this. (laughs) Um, My number five, Jonathan Penner. I love that guy. I find him so entertaining. Uh, he, what, what, it was, uh, Cook Islands was his first season. Um, and then he came back a few times. He came back the, the, I guess he was on, was he on fans versus favorites or heroes versus villains? One of those. And then he came back again on the season where they brought back people who'd been, uh, popular players who'd been medevaced from the game. And he got to run a tribe, uh, on that. And he's just, he's just one of the great uh, confessional soundbite type guys in the history of the show. I loved, I love Jonathan Penner. Uh, and he appeared on Seinfeld once. So, uh, All right. yeah, got to make out with Elaine. Shout out to that. Who else you got on favorites? Number four, Tyson Apostle. You already hit him. Just one liners. Does anyone compare to Tyson for funny one liners? No. And he has like a Zen approach. That's always really interesting to the game as well. So it, it's, it, it, he's, he's fantastic. Right. So number three, is the greatest player of all time, and I would say the third most entertaining of all time, Tony Vlacha. So, so so much fun to watch. Hell yeah. Hell yeah to that. All right, so number two, the greatest villain the game has ever known, who injected all this life into it in the mid-seasons when it was flagging, Russell Hance. Uh, love him or hate him, he is supremely entertaining at all times. Shout out to that indeed, yes. And my number one, now this one is a little more... Uh, I, he probably wouldn't be the most popular pick as the most entertaining player ever. But for me, I love me some Rob Sesternino, not just because of the podcast, although that doesn't hurt. But that season six in the Amazon, the way that he played made that one of the all time great seasons. He's in the greatest never to win conversation, along with Sari and Kelly Wentworth and Amanda Kimmel and players like that. He he really absolutely deserved to win, except at the final three, he lost the immunity and they had to get rid of him. Um, but he great player and so much fun to watch with the way that he invented the idea of like jumping from alliance to alliance yes. week after week. And I did want to shout out Denise Stapley, you know, the old mom with the abs. She's a yeah. very good player that, 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 yeah. you know, wins despite uh, she, she figures things out. She's a good player. All right. My favorite is Tony without question, but in that group of favorites, I'm a Cochrane guy. I loved when he won. That I thought season. about him. Yeah. Shout yeah. out to him. He, he figured out how to be, uh, amusingly annoying and, and nerdy, but figured it out. And he, you know, the growth as a player was great. Ozzy is so damn entertaining because rest. There are very few people who can backdoor potentially backdoor wins. And that means where everyone's trying to get you out, but you're, you're finding idols, you're, you're winning challenges and his ability to stay needed for his fishing ability, yet always be so dangerous to the tribe at any point. Great player to watch. One of my favorites. You got anything to say about him? Uh, I, I never, I don't find him as entertaining as you do. And there's, uh, there are some obvious holes in his strategic game, but there are certain, these survival elements and the challenge competition elements. Uh, he's as good as anyone who's ever played. My yeah. second favorite player of all time, coach Benjamin Wade. And the reason and, is because he has top five potential. He's got the mind for it. 
but he can make, he's not, he's not, he'll make a bad decision. So he's so vulnerable. He's so emotional within that vulnerability. And he's one of those great characters who creates a, a character for himself that he believes in to sort of psych himself up as the dragon slayer. I love me some coach Wade. So he is number one on my just missed my top five list. He's, you know, you can love him or hate him. Uh, but I think when you look at sort of the insane players from Survivor, and not that he's certifiably insane, but the the guys with a screw loose a little bit um, who are kind of delusional in some way. Like you look at a, a Philip Shepard. Uh, he was the guy, the, the, the specialist. specialist. Yes. Right. So he's like on the other side of that line where he is so bonkers that he's kind of annoying. Coach Wade is bonkers in an entertaining way. Yes. And and uh, they one of the first players that they sort of edited to make fun of him, um, but but had a lot of fun with it. And uh, yeah, I, I, I find him very entertaining while occasionally annoying. And I'll also just throw in one other name of a runner up uh, from a season that you were not watching. But Yao Man, Yao Man Chan was Ooh, just this, li- this little Asian guy uh, who w- played a great game and got pretty deep and then got voted out because he was clearly going to win if they let him go all the way to the end. It was the Fiji season, I believe, and just a, a really entertaining, lovable character. So I want to shout out that other small Asian man from recent seasons. Do you remember his uh, name? Tai Trang. Tai Trang is a is With one the of eyebrows. My, one of my favorite players of all time. Love that guy. Also wanted to shout out Rupert. I had a love hate relationship with him, but at times he's a really strong character. You can't take your eyes off of. He's a creeper. Uh, quickly, I wanted to hit up what you mentioned on Philip Shepard, where. I'm going to get into villains in a second, but there are those people that you love to hate, not in a villainy sense that they're there to shake up the game and screw it up, but they're so annoying or weird or freaky. Philip Shepard, the specialist, is at the top of that list. Here's a sample. People like you can't stand the truth. What did Jack Nicholson say to Tom Cruise? Son, you can't stand the truth. You can't take the truth. So that's what I'm saying to her. You can't. Uh, Philip, that was not. That was not how that uh, no. that quote uh, went. Do we have that here? I don't know. Probably. All right. Moving on. Uh, you can't handle the truth. Uh, also, <laughs> in that realm, okay, do you remember that freak Debbie, that lady that was on a couple times in recent seasons? Uh, oh, Debbie Warner. Yes. Here's a sample yes. of her. I have a bad attitude because I'm sick of defending myself. I took gymnastics for 10 damn bit. I'm loyal, loyal to you You, the You Crush My Heart line, you could see Satan come out of her as she said it. Uh, I think uh, Johnny Fairplay is both a villain and one of those people that you're like, cringe, get him off my screen, I hate him. My favorite in this category, and he almost made my top five favorite list. You could think of him as a villain, but he's such a schlub that it's hard to put him in there. Brandon Hance is one of the most interesting play if he was on more rask i would be so more entertained you remember the here's a sample of the greatest meltdown in survivor history stop talking about yourself boston rob took you to the end of the game you didn't do anything you were made fun of and you come here and you tell me don't bite the hand that feeds you i feed myself he feeds himself we had Probes giving him the massage. Yes, of course, yes. Remember that season? He hated all the hot chicks because they were threatening to break up his marriage because he was lusting yes. after them. That guy, Rask, whether you hate him, whether you cringed at him, you watched him. Shout out to Brandon Hans. 
He's the only player that I could say, like, watching from my couch at home, I was scared. I was scared for everybody on the island about what could possibly happen. Uh, yeah, there, he was he was not all there. That's that's a good that's a, a good one. Yeah, you, you hit on a bunch of the, John Rocker, the great villains. John Rocker, a great villain. Yeah. Um, do you want to label the greatest villain as Russell Hans a little higher than Sandra? They, they are the great villains of this. Show. Yeah, I think I think Hans has got to be the most hated overall player in the history of the show. Uh, that his his legacy as a villain and he he really leans into it um absolutely and i'll just say on johnny fairplay uh you know there's there there's some his second appearance you know was was pretty forgettable but the dead grandma lie is still gotta be like a top three all-time survivor scene it is the it was the most diabolical thing anyone tried in the first 10 years of the show and uh, shout out to him for that so here is the universal all-time greatest both survivor moment most iconic moment greatest put down greatest one-liner here it is from susan hawk if anyone ever votes they always vote this as not just one of the greatest survivor moments or the number one but like a top 10 all-time tv moment i've heard rask you will not get my vote my vote will go to Richard. And I hope that is the one vote that makes you lose the money. If it's not, so be it. I'll shake your hand and I'll go on from here. But if I were ever pass you along in life again and you were laying there dying of thirst, I would not give you a drink of water. I would let the vultures take you and do whatever they want with you with no ill regrets. I plead to the jury tonight. Uh, that's Susan Hawk sending Kelly Wigglesworth to hell in season and you, one. And you didn't even get into the rat and the snake there. Yeah, there was. Uh, what do you want to pick there? Uh, it's it's. So, is there any moment on par with it? Because it's it's. We used to have the black rule in '90s music where black's not your favorite Pearl Jam song, but when talking about Pearl Jam songs, you have to basically say it's the best thing they've ever written like stairway to heaven for zeppelin it's like that wouldn't be in my top five favorite zeppelin song but is there a better song you know probably not so that's the moment where it's like nothing will ever top that it was like so cold so early too in the in the genealogy of this show are there any other moments that deserve to be in that discussion i mean no i i think that has to be the number one most iconic moment it's fascinating for her to to hear her saying i hope my vote is the deciding vote because it was but also Greg asking Richard and, and Kelly to pick a number between one and ten was also the deciding <laughs> vote. It shows you just the the levels and the randomness of, of the game. But Sue Hawk's speech there is the number one most iconic Survivor moment. I would put probably Johnny Fairplay coming up with the plan during the uh, the family visit to have his oh. friend say that it, that his grandmother is dead and uh, in the that, fire season three maybe scooping in the fire it was a major season moment. season two yeah scooping in the killing fire the was pig, iconic killing the pig um, in the same season right 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 uh i love australian outback that's the season that got me hooked on the show um i feel like most of the other iconic moments are just iconic uh tribal council strategy moments like i was talking about with parvati playing the two idols or the season with malcolm freeberg where he has three idols and gives them to all yes. of his boys to even but but they, they didn't go anywhere with it they, they weren't able to last beyond that one but moments like that are up there but i think top two i think it's hard to put anything above sue hawk at number one and the dead grandma lie at number two <laughs> and i do want to t- throw in the tony and lucina fire battle from this most recent season 40 good one for yeah. drama and 
like that, like edge of my seat, edge of my friggin' seat. Shout out to that. Uh, quickly here, Rask, as we wind down, and I've held you so long, but this is fantastic content. I could go three more hours, BC. Yeah, yeah uh, Jeff Horn was a real man. Uh, Rask, <laughs> uh, is there a way to count down what are the best seasons? Do you, what do you got? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I got a list here. I actually, uh, I have five runners up too, but we'll we'll see if we bother with those. But here's my top five. Uh, number five, Samoa, Russell's first season. Maybe not quite top five most entertaining, but I'm putting it in here because it was so important because that season gave the the show another 20 seasons of life that it might not have had if that season hadn't come along. So that's my number five. Quickly, I wanted to shout out Russell in that season that Boston Rob won. It was Russell's Mm -hmm. third and final appearance. He was voted out early, but remember he created that uh, that 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 faction of hot chicks who did his work for him and he would sit back like a like a Don. That was a great (laughs) TV moment. All right. Keep going. (laughs) So number four, I'm going with my favorite season of the earliest seasons, Amazon season six, the Rob Sesternino season also had uh, Jenna and Heidi stripping for peanut butter, uh, classic moment, a little something for you to revisit BC if you missed that season. (laughs) Ethan Zahn knows about that season. Yes, yes. Heidi, by the way, married to uh, Cole Hamels, a Major League Baseball oh, pitcher, wow. former uh, Phillies 2008 World Series MVP. Um, so that that's, Amazon is just an amazing season. They came up with the controversial women versus men theme to start it. But as the tribes mixed, it just developed into a great season. Number three, Survivor Kagayan, Tony's first season. You also had uh, Chaos Cass and Spencer and Wu and just all these, all these great characters and Tony uh, running the show and becoming, you know, the, the first new player since Russell Hans to just like take everybody by storm. Uh, so I got that at number three, number two, Micronesia fans versus favorites, um, which had uh, the amazing ice cream scooper, Eric giving up his yes. necklace that they still replay 15 years later, whatever it's been as the, the biggest mistake in the history of the show. But the whole season was great. It started the very first episode. You had the fans tribe and they, blindsided one of the big meatheads on the very first vote, which you don't, you don't get rid of your physical beast on the first elimination. They did it on the first vote. It was just one of those things like, Oh, this is how it's going to be. And the season never slowed down. But number one for me, heroes versus villains. You had the early weeks were marked by Rob versus Russell in the villains camp, just going at each other. Uh, You had Tyson basically voting himself out by miscalculating everything. Uh, You had, JT writing a note to Russell uh, when they were on opposite tribes and tribes and slipping it to him and talking about how they're going to work together when they get together. And Russell pretended to, to go for it and then just totally turned it around on him and screwed JT. Just an amazing cast. It really was a perfect season, except that. Sandra got the win when it seemed to me like Parvati deserved it, but about, that's my favorite yeah. season. Heroes How about that versus final villains. Three: Sandra, Parvati, and Russell Hans. That's a iconic, yeah. and it was a six to three victory for Sandra. Iconic final three right there. Yeah, great uh, stuff. Definitely, if you're going to go fill in some of your gaps and rewatch some seasons, fans versus favorites and heroes versus villains are the two you got to see. And I'm going to put season 40, Winners at War. Some people have said that might be the best season ever. I really, I, every week was like, wow, it was, it was big. It was big. I agree no, it's, it's to, to a point. It's steroids. It's meant to have fireworks every episode. But, <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it started great. And then, unfortunately, as they voted out all of the old school players, the second half of the season wasn't as good because so many of the best personalities were on the edge of extinction instead of in the main game. That's fair. And um, 
here's a conversation that normally was it's in line with this because Rask sometimes you know when your favorite players get voted out and there's no second chance island there's nothing like that it's tough it's tougher when someone really attractive gets voted out too early Rask this is the uh the uh the uh Patreon portion of the show Rask that will probably get us fired but do you have a <laughs> a uh a favorite uh, you know, piece of eye candy in the history of, of Survivor. This is this is this is dangerous. Now I have to make sure that my wife is not going to listen to this no, podcast. I... Probably not an issue. If I don't tell her it exists, she won't know. Uh, so I just can't share it on Facebook. Only on Twitter. Um, boy, I would say so. You remember Kagayan? Uh, the season that Tony won. There was, and I can't even think of her name I'll right tell now. You, uh, Morgan McLeod. There it is. She's there it is. The Thank you. For the goat. She's in the running for the goat. Okay. Yeah, she was. Um, she was easy on the eyes. Let's just say that. Right. Um, but uh, the, there are some early ones. I kind of had. I had a little thing for Amber off Australian Outback season. But by the time they got to All Stars and she was with Rob, maybe prime, it was fading a little bit. Prime, but, like college look, Amber. I think is right up there with prime Liz Falarchik. As like your first two girl next door type of deals, you know? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. So I was a big fan of Amber. I'm trying to think of which other ones along the way I had like a significant crush on. Can I shout uh, out a few for you? Well, first of all, Mrs. Raskin. We both know it did exist. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, Seriously. You, you the podcast exists. This conversation exists. Uh, here's the deal here. Uh, here's who I believe is in the – let me give you honorable mentions here, okay? Okay, the, okay. The two that I mentioned there – Kelly Wigglesworth to me is in is is right outside looking in on the uh, Kelly not, Wigglesworth no, sorry, from the season one, one. The other one Wentworth. Kelly Wentworth is okay. on the outside yeah. looking yeah, I like in her. potential yeah. goat status. Do you remember Angie Layton from Philippines? Angie Layton, I can't picture. Right, her. Store that for later. Do you remember Candace Smith from Tonkan Cheens? No, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting washed in the, in, in terms of the old uh, the old bank up here. Do I don't. I'm forgetting all these. Brenda Lowe. From both fan favorites. Oh, Brenda Lowe. Yeah, yeah. She was she was pretty. Okay. Right, here's yeah, here's yeah. the three I think are in the real discussion here. Morgan McLeod Kagayan, Chelsea yeah. Meisner, One World. I think she wins in the end. And Alicia Holden from Brains versus Braun. So do you know Alicia Holden has a boxing connected connection? Is she related to Tony Holden? She is Tony Holden's daughter. Wow. I think I knew that when that episode And aired. And I think you think she's hotter than I do, because I don't remember her being one of my all-time favorites. But Okay, okay. A big, big Chelsea Meisner fan. Shout out to that. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you can do with that what you want with that, okay? Thank you. Uh, Morgan McLeod in the discussion. Thank you as well. Uh, as we close here, finally, Raskin, I thank you for your time. Um, the innovation. Some have worked, some haven't. Uh, I like the tokens that the, or the fire coins that they're having now. It does add something to it. I have liked at times the use of a second chance island, although Rask, I don't like it. It does take away that feeling that we just talked about when someone you wanted to see yeah. or you thought could win just got blindsided or got ganged up on because they're too powerful. I like that element. That's what makes the show hard. The idea that you can't be too strong looking. You can't be too clever. You have to dumb yourself down to a degree to try to sneak your way to a win. And when you have that second chance, I don't know. It's created some good elements, some bad. Is there anything that you hate the most that has been added to the show or anything you feel like can be added that could give the show even more life after 40 seasons? Well, first of all, I'll say that I'm in line with you on the any sort of edge of extinction, redemption, redemption island, anything like that, where uh, I'm I'm cool with them having tried things, experimented, give it a shot. But in general, the the purity of the game, the idea of 
you get voted out, your time on the game is over, other than perhaps you're serving in the jury or something, but you're out of the competition. That's the bet, always the best version of the game. So I, I generally don't like those twists that keep people in the game after they've been voted out. The best innovation from the history of the show, I think the most consistently rewarding one for the viewers was when they first started putting hidden immunity idols out there. It's just, uh, it's hard to believe that the game once existed without those because they're such a part of the fabric of the game. Now Um, I think it was better when you needed a clue to find them at least. And maybe there are too many idols and advantages in the game these days, but certainly that's something survivor came up with that worked and keeps working season after season. Uh, A lot of bad innovations that they tried, There was something called the Medallion of Power that lasted like half a season, (laughs) and I can't even remember what it did, but it was a complete disaster. Um, I think Edge of Extinction, I'm okay that they tried it once. I was annoyed that they tried it a second time, except it made sense in this Winners at War season to keep those cast members around longer. They didn't want you to lose Boston Rob early in the season, but I still don't like it. How do you feel about the final four fire making challenge that they've added? Because I thought it was kind of a cool twist at first to give the deserving the guy, the person who's running the game a, a better chance to to make it to the end. But I feel like it's every we've seen every iteration of it now you. and it's played out. I'm going to counter you. It's perfect. Why? Because I feel like we've gone too far away from the actual survivor element. I talked to that with Ethan. There's too many food challenges, right? It's not about like there's too many ways to fuel yourself. It's not about can you actually outlast somebody physically anymore. And that's one of those rare times where fire making is part of the whole survival idea. So having that as a potential final thing to me is great because there's so much drama in it. There is skill involved as opposed to just being voted out by opinion. And it gives you the option, Rask, of putting things in your own hands, of saying there's somebody out there who's so valuable they would beat me in a vote. So my only way to get them out is to outfire them. To me, I love that innovation. I'm in on it. I can do away with coins. I can do away with islands. But give me that. All right. I I agree that it has worked pretty well so far. I just think we might be reaching the point where it's time to shake it up again and and get rid of that. And and speaking of that, the shake up at the end, I hate that they always have a final three now. You remember the Kagayan season that Tony won? Yes. They surprised everybody by going back to final two. I think if the show was smart, they would have it that nobody ever quite knows. And it varies from season to season, whether it's two or three. So you can't totally plan that out. The final three, you always get one person who gets no votes. Um, so I, sometimes a final two is more dramatic. I think of Yule versus Oz. Actually, Yule versus Ozzy was a final three. It's just the third person didn't get any votes. So maybe scratch that as an example. But point is, uh, I, I want to see them mix that up. Some final two, some final three. Let that vary from season to season. All right, quickly, I want them to bring back something that my wife and kids hate, but I love it. Remember at the end of the season, at, after the final breakfast that they have, they would go up to the top of the mountain and there would be a setup of all the players that were voting it off and they would say something about each one for like 15 seconds. I love that because it's so reminded, uncomfortable. It reminded you who was who was in the season. You remembered all that. Um that is great. I am all for that. I think the great oh they've innovated greatly on the idea of bringing back older players sometimes all older player seasons, sometimes a mixture bringing in celebrities has been a great innovation. And I think they should do that more Rask because it's yeah. interesting. It, it, it yep. puts a target on their back. Sometimes they pretend if they, if no one picks them out that they're a regular person. I like that. My main thing to them that they can do and should do is this change the location, not just like get out of the Caribbean Island or not Caribbean, get out of the, the idea of tropical Island. I would mm-hmm. like to see how this could work. 
in a forest in the wintertime. I would like to see how this could work in a desert. I would like, because the one thing, Naked and Afraid, which was obviously inspired in some ways by Survivor, Naked and Afraid is a kind of ridiculous show, but it's interesting at the same time. They have many different uh, setups in there, right? It's desert, it's it's swamps. Like, I would like to see a little bit more of an aspect put back on the physical survival of it all. I'm not really even into the uh, to the competitions. Like, I, I tune out when it comes to the time for, like, the... The challenge. I'm not a challenge guy. I don't need crazy puzzles and challenges. Give me a little bit more physical challenges where they fight. I like those ones. And give me a little bit more of let's change the scenery. That might be the best thing. I I, I could go for that. And especially if they're going to attempt to do a season 41 uh, this summer, as they're still claiming they're going to try to do, it's probably pretty hard to get out of the country. I would wonder if, uh, you know, coming up with X number of acres of land somewhere in the Midwest that's like untouched and 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 bubble it off from the world and film it like right here in America somewhere uh, might be the, the the only option they have. I don't think they'll ever do the cold winter season because Survivor lives for people having to strip down to their Great underwear point. and bikinis. So I Great so I don't point. think they're ever going to do that. But um, yeah, I mean there are a few things that I'd like to see them work on come up with somehow some kind of mechanism to avoid the two or three best looking women always getting voted out in the first three or four episodes. <laughs> they got to figure that out. Um, maybe expand it to 90 minutes instead of 60 if CBS will allow them, because I felt like this past season, there were some episodes where the strategy was just cut yes. out because we had to show edge of extinction and we had to show this and that, and they're, they're cutting out challenges. There are reward challenges that we never get to see. There's just too much maybe expand the show to 90 minutes. So on if, that if point real quick, big brother, I don't watch it, but it gives you too much. There's multiple episodes a week and you can watch the right. live 24 hour stream of just hearing them talk. I think survivor needs something extra to add on because it does leave you wanting more, but I almost want to hear more of the fun moments between them or, or the, or the arguments than just strategy in your face all the time. All right. Uh, Rest, I, I can't keep you here any longer. We both have families <laughs> to get back to. Thank you for going on this journey with me. This was epic. This was epic. Thank you for having me, Brian. And uh, I, I really, I could have gone another two hours if you wanted to. I'm right there with you. And by the way, just real quickly, Alicia, Angie Layton is in the GOAT discussion. Look that up. Okay, I'll look that prevent, up. Let's not forget prime poverty. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you <laughs> and and the listeners can't uh, can't see this, but Brian was really leaning in close there to, uh, <laughs> to, to, get, to get his point across with all that. Thank you. We out Rasko. They can follow you at Eric Raskin on things. That's right. Yep. All yep. Right. On Twitter at Eric Raskin. And uh, and maybe uh, check out usbets.com if you're into the world of gambling. Absolutely. Check out the Moneymaker Effect. Great one. Raskin, we out.